and I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic podcast, a podcast about games, life, and other things. And welcome to episode 76. Well, then, I this feels like it's going to be fairly predictable because as 76, like one of the only things I can actually even talk about is 1776. But that's not 76. That's 1776. You think we're going to stop the podcast? Are, are you really? <laughs> what are you going to say when we get to that number? You're, I will apologize profusely <laughs> on this platform. All right. like, I made a mistake 1,700 episodes ago when I said we weren't going to make it to 1,700 episodes. We do tend to shorten it for like the basketball team. They're just the 76ers, so I'll let you get away with it. Hang on. Now you've got me thinking because we do 26 episodes a year. So to do another 1,700 episodes, we're talking... Oh, okay, Ben. As long as we're doing this podcast for another 65 and a fourth years, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> it will be 110. <laughs> hey, we should. There could just be digital versions of us doing the podcast at that point, rehashing the robot apocalypse and uh, all kinds of nonsense. Anyway, man, we strayed far afield. 1776, Ben. What was important about that date? Uh, well, I read a book uh, called 1776, and it was not good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for all of you non-Americans out there, uh, 1776 is widely celebrated as the year that our great nation was uh, born because on August 2nd, 1776, uh, the founding fathers, or who are considered to be the founding fathers, signed the Declaration of Independence, which is the document that basically told Britain to shove it. <laughs> so the book that I read is by David McCullough, who's a notable historian. I love his work. Um, I highly recommend his book, The Wright Brothers, to anyone that talks about the invention of powered flight. And so when I picked up the book called 7076, I thought I was going to be reading a book about the American Revolution. No, it was about the calendar year 1776 AD, starting in January and ending on December 31st. Interesting. Yes. Well... One thing that I think is interesting that I learned in college history that I hadn't thought about before was that everybody that signed this declaration, it wasn't like the United States was this cohesive, you know, economic powerhouse back in the day. It was just, you know, a bunch of idiots out in the country saying we don't want to pay taxes anymore. And so everybody that signed this document was essentially signing their own death warrant. They're like, hey, here is a list of the most influential people in this burgeoning new democracy that are telling you to your face to shove it. Like, these guys were, like, number one wanted state enemies when they yep. signed this thing. If they'd failed to establish their own government and security, you're right. They would have just ended up either executed in the town square or in a British prison or sent to Australia. So a lot of these men fought in the Revolutionary War. Others served as heads of state, and most of them went on to be very important in American history in one way or another. But of... I just want to bring this up and I'll be done with 76 is of the 56 people who signed the declaration of independence, only nine of them actually died in the revolutionary war, which is, wow. I mean, remarkable. you considering the fact that they were like public enemies at this point. Great success. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. Okay, cool. Well, since 
Last time, I kind of told the story about how my family's penchant for at-fault auto accidents had gotten me fired by my insurance company. Uh, one of our listeners actually went on our subreddit on reddit.com slash r slash badatmagic, and it had given me some advice. So this past, during the intervening time since we recorded episode 75, I'd gone in, I'd done some research, and I found out something. And I also need to thank uh, Reddit user Jim. And that is, Josh, I had been overpaying for auto insurance. <laughs> Uh, by by what amount? By what fraction? Like uh, multiples, uh, orders of magnitude? What it, are we talking? Double digit percentage. Ooh, ooh, that's no bueno. Yeah, so you know what they say on the commercials. It, you <laughs> switch now and you can save whatever. <laughs> yeah, on auto insurance. So <laughs> yeah, I did some research, and actually, I'll be able to get insurance again, and it'll be fine. Everything's fine. The panic can end. Are you insuring these other children? Or are they on their own? No, no. I'll be able to insure the kids. At least until they get another at-fault auto accident under yeah. their belt. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? You always do this. You're projecting this like this worst-case scenario into the stratosphere. And then I won't be negatively impacted when it happens. We've talked about this. This is my <laughs> default view of the universe. I can only ever be pleasantly surprised. All right. Well, let's talk about um, your remodel of your backyard what i want to know how's it going oh, all geez. i saw was some pictures of you like you know with your sweat glistening off your bulging biceps as you smashed a Whoa. cinder block wall with a hammer ben we're gonna get to monetize <laughs> all right so um i don't know if i mentioned this but we finally bit the bullet and we are going to remodel the backyard um the yard has been terrible since i've been here there was one spring where I made a real yeah, go. Yeah, yard is a strong word. Ugh, I made a real go at trying to replant grass. Like it's I a watered pool it and some dirt. Day. You're killing me, Smalls. Like, let me lay my claim here. <laughs> I tried to make it a real yard at one point and failed miserably. Like, the only thing that grew was weeds. And, yeah, I, I'm just – I'm over it and I'm sick of it. And so we're finally going to take the time, the money, and the just the sheer effort of will that it's going to take to remodel the thing. Put wow. the money down with a landscaping company. They're going to do pavers on the back patio, and they're going to put artificial turf down everywhere. But while we're doing this, my wife and I decided, well, let's take a hard look and decide if there's any changes that we want to make. And so there was, like, uh, the old people that lived here had, they had extended the patio out. Like, so they poured extra concrete for another, like, uh, eight feet out, away from where the house ends. And uh, I, I want to slap the guy that did it because he's a complete moron. They sloped it so that all of the drainage, like, all right, your back porch, listeners, go to your back porch. Guess what? It slopes away from your house. This idiot, like, took the addition that he poured and sloped it towards the house. So now my patio was like a taco, and there was this big <laughs> line in the middle. So anytime, it doesn't rain a lot in Arizona, but whenever it did, my back porch was just a lake because all the water was flowing to the center of the porch. Wow. Why? That's so dumb. I mean, he wouldn't be like, oh, I think this should slope towards the other. It'd be like he started digging and it got really hard. And so he just stopped digging and thought that looks good enough. To be fair to him, if he wanted to keep the same grade of the original porch on the extension, then there would have been like an eight inch step up to get to the pool area. Yeah. And so that's why he didn't do it. But here's here's the trick. Don't pour the extra concrete in the first place. <laughs> then the water just drains there, and it's fine. Whatever. It's whatever. So anyway. Okay, hang on, hang on. I, I, I love this self-righteous speech about sloping concrete. Do you know how close you were to doing that in your own shower? I, I was so close to doing that in my own shower that I jackhammered it up when I realized that I had messed it up. 
right. and did it over, Ben. Okay. Because you do it right or you do it twice. This guy just did it the once and it was broken and half-assed. Don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. Yeah, and I want to say that I want to say that in the way that a friend of mine in the army when I was down in Florida said, there's two ways you do things in the army, right? And again, <laughs> yes. So I, I prescribe to that quite a bit. And there are a lot of things that I have to do again. In this case, I'm doing the things again that the last guy did wrong the first time. So anyway, we're replacing that entire extension of the patio. We want it gone. We're just going to replace it with artificial turf. Like it's going to be an extension of the yard to increase the amount of green that we get. But that means I had to – the landscaping company quoted me an, an absurd price for doing the demolition. And we're talking I'm saving 20% on the total price of the project by doing the demolition myself. Ah, hence the glistening biceps. Hence the – dude, <laughs> settle down. <laughs> You're going to get people in a tizzy. <laughs> no, all right. So we had two built-in barbecues in the absolute stupidest places that they could possibly be. And then this extension of the patio. And rightfully, the landscapers didn't want to deal with those because it's big, heavy concrete. So my brother has a full-size jackhammer because, of course, he does. And he let me borrow it. And I like spent— pneumatic or electric? Electric. But it's still full—I mean, like, it, it, it weighs 90 pounds. Like, this is, a, wow. this is not, a, not your dad's jackhammer. This is, like, construction-grade material stuff. Okay. And he let me borrow it for about a month now. And um, the barbecues went down pretty easy because they were just cinder blocks. So I, there's this this great sequence of photos where I'm standing up on top of this built-up thing. And slowly over the course of a few hours, the pile of rubble just gets shorter and shorter as I break it down and haul it off. Uh, my son helped quite a bit. So good on Carter for going out there with his gloves and his yeah. muffs and picking up a couple of rocks here and there. <laughs> the patio was more of a pain in the butt because those slabs are like five inches thick. And so I just use the uh, jackhammer to like score lines in it like you would on pottery or something. And then you smack it real hard and then it kind of breaks along the scores. Huh. And then I'd end up with uh, – I've got a, I've got some great pictures of a giant pile of like 90 to 100 pounds slabs of concrete that are about two feet by two feet. Because here's that the – It feels like just the start of the problem. You still got to get rid of it after that. Oh, yeah. That's the problem that I'm facing now. I have this enormous pile of concrete and I called one of those junk removal services. I'm like, hey – how much do you get rid of this concrete? How much do you got? Quite a bit. Send me some pictures. And I texted him some photos. He's like, ooh, it's going to be about 900 bucks. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, that's not a reasonable <laughs> answer to this question. Five, why is it five inches thick? Is that how much concrete you normally pour? For a patio? Yeah. 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 Jeez. Haven't you ever jackhammered up a patio, my friend? Uh, no, and neither have you until just now. And I look. I, I knew it was that thick, though. Yeah. Like, I I don't know. I've been around when they were pouring patios, I guess. Well, you were making me think about how this falls in that category of things in life that you're kind of aware of and you think you can do. And then the first time you do it, you actually have to just figure out how. Like, I'm sure you tried one thing and that wasn't quite right. So you tried something else and then you changed it a little bit and you kind of settled on something. Maybe that's still not the ideal, but it was good enough to get the job done. That's true. For the first like 20 or 30 minutes, I kind of floundered figuring out how to jackhammer this concrete because like the, the like I said, the barbecues came down real easy because they were cinder block and they just disintegrated under the, the jackhammer. This is patio concrete that was five inches thick. Like I tried to like break it into chunks like I was doing before and it kind of laughed at me. So I had to figure something else out and the like cutting it into like a big waffle style grid and then breaking it into those pieces that worked best for me. Yeah. Well, we'll see if that lends itself to the next phase in the operation. Which is getting rid of all this crap. And I think what I'm going to do is just rent a dumpster and just have them put the dumpster on my driveway for like a couple of days. 
that should be three, four, five hundred bucks, something like that. As opposed just, to nine hundred, I could see. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I again will have to haul all of this concrete from my side yard into the dumpster, but you know, whatever. I yeah, was sure. I, Let's set this up so you have to do this in August in Arizona. <laughs> so okay, I had I have two thoughts on this topic. One is that it is a wonderful workout. Like I got I I've, like you're talking about the sweaty biceps. Like I got some some I got that side eye look from my wife a couple times to the to the yeah, backyard window. Nice, because I'm out there doing manly man work with a jackhammer. A couple uh-huh. times I would do it in slow motion just for her benefit. You know how it is. <laughs> And then the second, the the other end of the spectrum is I was like on the verge of passing out, hauling these concrete blocks to my side yard thinking, you know, this is the kind of stuff they used to have like convicted inmates do for punishment, move rocks from one place to another. Right. Or, um, or middle America, you know, middle income people that want to remodel their backyard and not have to pay too much for someone else to do it. There's some comedian that has a whole bit about how um, he's going to open a CrossFit gym for middle-aged housewives, and he's just going to have them go like work on a railroad, like just like <laughs> laying railroad ties down or something and call it a, a workout, and they're all going to be for it. Like, yeah, we're paying you money to do this. Yeah, nice. The Tom Sawyer gag is, a, is alive and well in, in 2022. One of our Reddit users asked the question and i actually didn't know the answer for you i know the answer for me and that is are you currently playing or do you intend to play elden ring no segment so, over moving on no <laughs> no so that was no for me too but i felt like it deserved a little bit of an answer beyond that because i know you play lots of games i'm a little bit surprised that you don't play it and you don't intend to so i was aware that this was kind of the next big open world fantasy game so i went and watched a trailer of it it looks cool i guess i've watched my son play dark souls and i'm i don't think i'm interested in the in this particular game but i i asked myself a fundamental question it's it's the part of me that was the kid that that used to think when i was a grown-up and i had all the money i wanted to buy all the video games i wanted that i would spend more of my time playing video games instead of less <laughs> and that is like okay Probably Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which I think you played all the way through, right? Uh, I did. I actually played that one to completion. I just have not. I have the and and I feel like that's the one standing in my way of doing anything like playing Elden Ring. Like if I'm going to do any open world fantasy game, it's going to be Breath of the Wild before it's going to be Elden Ring. And I haven't done Breath of the Wild, and I'm not likely to, so I'm never going to play Elden Ring. <laughs> well, I mean, and that makes sense. So uh, for me. This is very easily summarized, like this this transition you're talking about as you get older and like the, the money is there, but the time isn't. Uh, and I can easily illustrate this with pictures of the games that I have because uh, I still bought, for the longest time, I bought games uh, the old-fashioned way where you actually like went to the store and bought a physical thing that you could hold in your hand. That was the disc for the game. Right. And so the stack of PlayStation 2 games that I have from when I was single, and then I got an, uh, uh, like a Wii. Yeah, I think I got a Wii. And then the stack of Wii games that I have, and then I got an Xbox, and then the stack of Xbox games that I have. And then I got an Xbox three, or no, Xbox One, and the stack of Xbox One games. Like, each generation of console that I bought, the stack of games that I own for that console decreases at least by half. And I think my Xbox One, uh. I think I have, like, two or maybe three games. So you games could create almost like a, like a physical approximation of a bar chart. Yes. Of, of Josh's decreasing video game habit. <laughs> well, console video game habit, I guess. I do 
It, you you mentioned like you said oh you play a lot of games I I really don't actually not right now like I have a handful of games that I try to squeeze in when I can and the rest of the time I'm just working man. All right, did you play um, oh, what was the one that they always make about getting shot in the knee and like you wake up there's always Skyrim like, com- yeah Skyrim did you play Skyrim I did play Skyrim yes but okay, that so you to, played Skyrim it, I played th- that came out when uh, before like right when my son was born though so like that was a different time is it life. that old holy crap yes man it is that right. old I've never played Skyrim I don't know how to I don't know the subgenres of these games anymore since they've <laughs> kind of blossomed like our our Skyrim and, and Elden Ring virtually the same thing Elden Ring's just the highest tech most recent version uh, without having played it what I can tell you like I do keep up or try to keep up with the games industry and they are similar but in different subgenres. so they're both open world like go explore and do whatever you want kind of things with a linear progression that you can follow if you want or side quests or whatever the difference is the skyrim is like a standard bethesda rpg so uh, they i i don't know how to explain it any better than that like the combat and things it's like it's kind of linear in its progression it's just it's a game and it feels like a game elden ring is following the path of dark souls where Dark Souls is the subgenre of game where people think difficulty is fun. And not like right. difficulty like, oh, I want to be good at I have to be good at this game to be able to beat it, but like difficulty like if I beat my head against this wall enough, I'm gonna start flicking the paint away, and it's gonna be either me or the wall that dies first. And that's right. that's kind of what the Dark Souls thing is. Right, right. It just has this notoriously punishing combat mechanics where you you can't just brute force your way through beating enemies. You actually have to learn their timing and weaknesses. Yes. Uh, it's insane difficulty is is where that is and that's that's kind of what the Elden Ring model is yes it's a big open world and you can do what you want but there's going to be random enemies that you walk up to like on the street that can pound you into the dirt okay yeah not interested (laughs) (laughs) no thanks well I mean that there's there's a a ton of those subgenres sub genres of games that I have no interest in like there's a huge uh, um, rallying right now around work simulators like, one of the best-selling games of last year was Farm Simulator 2022. Wow. Okay. I mean, I played Railroad Tycoon, like, way back in the day, and then oh, Civilization. This, and- no, dude, no. There's no game mechanics here. Like, it's you have a farm, and you buy farm equipment, and you farm. And, like, you can take side jobs, like, oh, I need somebody to mow my grass for some extra some money. Like, oh, do I have enough time to, like... D- weed my field of wheat and then also go mow this lady's grass to try to make ends meet like it's- I, know, I know we've talked about this at length on the podcast but josh you recommended to me a work simulation game that i tried and felt like a soul-sucking horrible job you are talking about papers please i know you are i i totally am and but ah oh, oh, papers please is fantastic because it tricks you it gives you this what you see as a work simulator, and then it weaves this intricate story into it in such a way that you really start caring about stuff that you have no that there's no reason you should be caring about. Yeah, it, but there's like a, a barrier to entry that I wasn't willing to pay. <laughs> like do. it also had punishing gameplay. Like you you just have this shortened time that you're supposed to be processing people through this border checkpoint and you're supposed to be checking their name against the documentation that they hand you and you look check their photo and you're supposed to look at the expiration date and the point of origin and every day they pile more and more stuff you're supposed to remember on top of you i know i'm describing exactly what the game the designers want you to feel it just feels hopeless to and, and you're messing up and you're not making enough money 
and you're not processing enough people through the checkpoint and you making mistakes and you're getting in trouble and, and it was just, I just I was like I can't do this and I quit everything that you're talking about though is exactly what the creator of the game wanted you to feel I know they I know. wanted you to feel like that guy in that booth when these people started coming through when the woman comes through with the sob story about oh you just let my son through please let me through and her stuff is messed up now you are you are actually embodying the person like lady I just sit in this booth all day like I don't have time for your nonsense or do you show empathy to this person knowing that you're going to get in trouble for it Yeah if I let you through this checkpoint with this crappy paperwork you just handed me I'm going to get fired and then I won't be able to feed my family and I don't and my heat's already cut off Yes and that's the, oh that's the beauty of that game because it really you know, you can play Breath of the Wild and you can like it as much as you want, but you're never going to feel like you're the one actually holding the sword. <laughs> like, papers, no, please. Right. You feel like you're holding that stamp that says yay or nay. Yeah, okay. I'll give you that, even though it's got that kind of blocky retro graphic style. <laughs> papers, please. Still highly recommended. All right. Josh, I learned a new fact this week. I want to I run it by you and see if you had the same reaction I did. Who is the top grossing actor of all time? What actor... Is or the top grossing actor of all time. Okay, so I'm going to ask some, some follow-ups. Uh, uh-huh. but, so one, I'm assuming that it's not going to be somebody that I immediately think of because you're asking me this, this question. Yes. So it's a non-obvious answer. Uh, second, are we talking actor? Like it's a male person. It could be male or female. It could be male or female. Okay, we're using the, the gender neutral. Um, <laughs> I assume it's not a, a big Hollywood star. I'm going to assume it's somebody that's been syndicated, uh, syndicated on a popular TV show to death. And so I'm going to say one of the friends. Okay. Good good guess. Uh this is this would just uh I'll give you one more classifier and that's we're just talking about movies. Oh, okay. Um then it's going to be somebody that's been in a lot of movies. Um oh, I I Danny Trejo. Great guess. It is Stanley. 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 What? <laughs> Stan Lee has to his credit, you know, 49 movies in which he just, you know, shows up for 10 seconds and does a cameo. And because he's in those movies and those movies have grossed $30.6 billion in the box office, Stan Lee is the top grossing <laughs> actor of all time. Uh, because Stan Lee showed his face in like basically every Marvel movie. <laughs> that's, yeah. Oh, that. All right. That's a wonderful legacy for Stan Lee to have. I know. I, he's I dead approve. now, so his record is static, but it's he's got a good lead on second place. What totally approved. That's great. I, I love that. Thank you, Ben. That made me feel good about my about just the world. <laughs> now, if you start to parse that list a little bit and look into it, you know, there's other ways you can count. Like if you count by um if they're the lead role, it's actually a woman. Do you want to guess who it is? You might have a poster of this person in the room where you're sitting right now. Oh, is it really Scarlett Johansson? Yeah, she's in first place with a slight lead over Robert Downey Jr. If you count by ticket sales because things get blown out of proportion by most recent movies because of inflation and changes in ticket prices, you, you then that sends you way back into like old-timey movies and Clark Gable has sold way more movie tickets than anybody alive today. Yeah, well, Hollywood was different back then and Clark Gable probably filmed 12 movies in the course of three months while he was on set. <laughs> yeah, but I think it also is he was also the star of Gone with the Wind. It's one of the top, uh, you know, movies of all time. There's lots of other ways to measure. By some measures you could put Harrison Ford atop the list of the domestic box office or you could yeah, but but Stan Lee 
is alone if you're just measuring by an actor that's in a movie that's made the most money. Hang on a second. How bored were you that you fell down into a spreadsheet <laughs> of box office grosses? Like you just told me, like I'm imagining you staring at a at, at an Excel spreadsheet that you pivot tabled and like rearranged five different ways to have that discussion. Like, yeah, where, where do you? It, it's well, see, your instinct that when I ask you the question to ask like four qualifying questions was good. You just missed another three qualifying questions. But yes, but lots of data. Yeah, where? Why? What? What? what happened in your life that you decided like you know what i'm gonna make the world's most complicated spreadsheet about hollywood actors and just like spent an afternoon doing it i'm gonna remain mysterious about this one ah jerk it is time for bad at logic excellent let's get out our critical thinking cards and because it's an even number episode we'll do a logical fallacy today today's logical fallacy is black or white I really like this one, Ben. Uh, This is something that I refer to as the false dichotomy. Yes. I'll read the definition on the card. Where two alternative states are presented as the only possibilities when, in fact, more possibilities exist. So, Ben, my kids wanted to watch all of the Star Wars movies, and we were watching episode three. just, Just the worst. And there was that scene. (laughs) Spoilers for Star Wars, everyone. Yes. Obi-Wan comes walking down the ramp of that ship. And then him and Anakin are having this face off. And Anakin goes, "Uh, you're either with me or you're my enemy. And then I immediately pause the video and I go, that's actually a false dichotomy. There are many shades of gray in this scenario where Obi-Wan could fall into. There's many different uh, allegiances and factions and motivations that he could have in this moment. Anakin is portraying a logical fallacy. And then I hit play and then obi-wan goes only a sith thinks in absolutes and then i paused it okay obi-wan just made a logical fallacy there because only sith think in absolutes is an absolute, is an absolute. yes <laughs> awesome well done good good job bringing your children up right i wonder if they were just sitting there absorbing that at the kid level and you're trying to take them to like the college level <laughs> Kid, if you kids listen, if you're ever faced with a bully, like you're either with me or you're against me, you will stop him dead in his tracks and you say, "Well, actually, that's not true. There are several different things that I could be feeling at this moment, and none of those necessarily are with or against you." I think why it's important to be aware of this logical fallacy of the black or white is it's a way to try to trap your opponent. You present them with a false dichotomy and then ask them why they can't make a simple decision. Yes, it's either this or it's this. Well, now hang on a second. There's actually a whole bunch of different courses of action. These are just the two that you're identifying, and one of those is obviously a straw man that you're going to tear apart if I pick it. Right. Oh, and, or I agree with you, and that I don't do. So let's <laughs> let's take some time and take this apart a little. All right. We also need to do bad at English, and this week I want to do one. I went I went back and looked at my database of all the ones we've done before, and I don't know how, Josh, in the history of bad at English, after 76 episodes, I've never done the word cheeky. I feel like that's the quintessential British term. Isn't it? So it dates back to the mid-1800s, and they used to use it primarily in the noun form, cheek. And the the word cheek uh, in that usage was like to give, uh, to be, the act of being sassy or impudent. (laughs) Don't give me that that cheek. Yes. I told him to go up the wooden hill to Bedfordshire because he was giving me a bit of cheek. I didn't get any of that except for the last bit. <laughs> yeah, it means you sent your kid to his room because he was talking back. Okay, so <laughs> they added E to the end and used it as an adjective form. And this word is delightful because recently it has taken on some new meanings. 
So the original form just meant like sassy, impudent, insolent, those kinds of things. Uh, it started to kind of morph to also mean like silly or irreverent. And then it's taken on a new form where it kind of means forbidden or unusual. I'll give you an example. A lot of my British friends used to say, oh, we'd been out drinking all night and I, I, stopped off at the, um, I stopped off at the corner store and had a cheeky kebab. Okay, just... It's just junk food. It's like how they're just... Oh. <laughs> or uh, what's one I, I saw a lot of, um, there were people that say, um, fancy a cheeky pint after work. So I'll, I'll read you this write-up I saw online that was really good because here's what the, here's here's a full laydown of what that means. Fancy a cheeky pint after work. Effectively, they're saying I know it's only Tuesday and I really should be rushing home to make something for dinner or perhaps more virtuously going to the gym. But do you want to have a quick drink or two in the local pub before heading on to the torture chamber known as the rush hour two? <laughs> if you or, want to completely blow off all of our adult responsibilities, yes, yes. So we'll have a cheeky pint on a Tuesday. That's funny. Whenever I hear this term, all I can think of is Mary Poppins singing that song about medicine and sugar. Yes, and, a spoonful and, of sugar. Yeah, and she was singing to herself in the mirror, and her mirror was singing uh, harmonically back to her. <laughs> and then went on like a vocal solo, and she just stared at the mirror and like this nasty look on her face. Cheeky. And then moved on. <laughs> Which is a great example of one of the few instances in cinema of the movie being better than the book. Uh <laughs> Another example I saw is uh, I was I was absolutely wasted when I got home from work, so I snuck off for a cheeky nap. And the the thing that the writer pointed out about that is that the nap isn't cheeky; the person taking it is. Well, like it's a sensible yeah. thing to do to take a nap, but like you said, kind of shrugging off your responsibilities. I found two other uses of the word cheeky in Australia. They also use that to describe poisonous animals. <laughs> Oh, well, is it the, the, cheeky snake. No, uh, poisonous or venomous? Let's be Ven clear. Uh, it's, oh, my gosh. Whatever, whichever one is correct. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is important because Australians might eat these animals. And so the poisonous is more important than the venomous. Oh, okay. Sense. Venomous then. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. So a, a cheeky snake is different. A, a cheeky snake is different than a, than a regular snake. <laughs> I love the accents. Keep them coming. Um. And the word cheeky is also used to describe clothing, in which case it means it displays your buttocks. <laughs> oh, that's the American version. It's a cheeky bathing suit. Yeah, I 100% I, I approve of all cheeky clothing for women in America. Now, as, as I've pointed out the etymologies and origins of these British words that we don't typically use frequently in America, um, the ones that have originated after the rebellion of the colonies are the ones that tend to be unique to the UK and not used in the US. But this one saw a slight rise in popularity in the late 80s because there used to be a character played on Saturday Night Live by Mike Myers called Simon. Have you ever seen old videos of Simon? Uh, I don't think I have. Okay, it's just Mike Myers uh, as a grown man but acting like he's a little kid uh, and he sits in the bathtub and tells you about his life in a British accent. I'll put a link in the show notes of one of his videos. And one of his catchphrases was cheeky monkey. Uh, yeah, that sounds like something Mike Myers would do. Yes, yes, yes. So <laughs> link in the show notes. Cheeky monkey just means an impudent person, usually a child. Uh, and that is cheeky. 
We need to do a bit of Bad at Magic Josh here on the Bad at Magic podcast. We occasionally talk about the game of Magic. The first thing I want to talk about is there was a bit of, uh, well, okay, there's always, for those of you that don't follow Magic, there's always brewing, it's it's become a self-referential joke that um, every every new thing that happens in Magic is going to be the death of Magic. <laughs> well, that's, uh, you can extrapolate that to everything. It's like every old generation says the new generation is the worst that's ever come and the, the end of the world is nigh. Right. So, you know, every time they make a change to the rules or the mechanics or the competitive play system or add a new digital client or whatever, everyone, there, there are prophets prophesying the end is near. I have prophesied the end of magic several times in this podcast. <laughs> so an- one that had kind of happened is that they changed something very fundamental. Magic typically releases new products where there's a box of new cards sitting on the shelf about four or five times a year, not to account like little promotional things here and there. And in the past, what they've done is, I, I don't know, maybe they put a lot of weight on the amount of energy required to come up with a new creative intellectual property, and so they would split it up. So if they were going to come out with a new world, and they were going to design a new story and characters and stuff like that, instead of just releasing it in one set of cards, of 256 cards, they would split it up and release it in one big set of 256 cards and two small sets of 140 cards. So that they took the story and world and stretched it out across most of a calendar year and across you know almost 500 cards. And that's what we used to call the blocks. Like there was Ravnica block that had the three sets. There was the Alara block that had the three sets. And that's just how things were when I was around. Now, um, I believe that the biggest shift away from that was not so much to do with the intellectual property and the coming up of new uh, ideas. I think it had to do with the economics is that there was always three sets. And like you said, the first one had 250 some odd cards, but the next two only had like uh, 120 or so. And I think yeah. the sales numbers for those second and third sets didn't like it, it, it made more sense to have one big set as opposed to having two follow ons. Like, right. economically. And, and I don't think it was because they're being lazy. I think it's just because it's difficult to produce. But as they've gotten better at doing it and their staff has increased and stuff, I think they just reached the level of scale where they could produce a large set every time. So the question is, what's the best way to do that? So they've experimented over time, but because the lead time on what they're doing now is so far out between what's actually being coming out now. Like right now, they're working on some future set that we don't know anything about, and the set that they just released this month was something they made a year ago. Well, theoretically, they should have three or four sets in various stages of design right now. Like right. Some that are like on the drawing board, and then in various stages of work in progress all the way to this one's ready to release in like a month. Right. So back in 2017, Mark Rosewater, Magic's lead designer, released an article he called Metamorphosis 2.0 where he basically said, uh, because of some of the reasons you said and some others, that they were potentially considering telling us, you know, if they're going to release four sets in a year to have each of those four sets be a unique world and just do single set blocks. Yes. And of course, that's yet another thing where all the, you know, prophets come out of the woodwork <laughs> and predict the death of Magic the Gathering. Well, like for the Thorthrosis out there like myself that actually really enjoy the story behind Magic the Gathering, the death of the three block like story arc within one world is kind of a bummer because now we get a, a set and there is a story in the set and it may or may not have anything to do with anything else that's going on in Magic. And so we've gone from this big like episodic serial adventure to little vignettes of Saturday morning cartoons that may or may not have anything to do with each other. 
Hmm. That's in- that's interesting. I, I've also experienced this, but I've had a different feeling about it, and that is, um, I felt like that when they were doing you know two or three set two or three blocks as part of a you know, two or three sets as part of a block that um, I just had more time to absorb the story without having to, and now it's just happening too fast. Yeah, so you get to ignore more of the story, and it doesn't bog <laughs> you down at all. Well, okay, so. Mark Rosewater, in the article where he introduced all this, he kind of talked about, as you do when you're a corporate person trying to promote your product, you talk about all the positive things of the new thing you're going to do. Right. Which is that this would allow for fully contained worlds and more of them, that there'd be more consistent draft environments. And this is a big one. We don't need to go into depth in that. But basically, when you would when you'd have a three-set a three block, a three set block you know, you would still end up opening packs from the first set when the second and third ones came out. And it just yes. messed up. Because the of the design environment. and the, right. the quota for the types of cards, yeah, you had right. to open all the other sets to have a good draft environment. Right, yeah. So having self-contained uh, worlds and set, sets allows for better drafting. Um, and then, so this is what got all the criticism, is he talked about how since they've transitioned to this, the game has been more profitable than it's ever been. Now, he wasn't saying that was the only reason, and I think people are being too alarmist about that, but is profit a sufficient motivator or indicator of success? Uh, No, because is that accounting for inflation? Is that accounting for costs? Is that accounting for the introduction of a new digital client where people can spend real hard-earned cash on buying literally nothing but electrons 24-7, 365 from their toilet? Like that's probably a lot more to do with the profitability of the business than the 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 block structure. Yeah. So Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, which came out over the winter time frame, was the number three set of all time, and it was the first time a winter set had ever even broken a hundred million dollars. So it was the the most successful winter set of all time. I will tell you, Ben, I drafted the crap out of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. That yeah, was it was a great set. It was a really fun set to play, yeah. So the cons are, like you said, you don't get any more like small sets. You don't get the like stretched out story where you can, you know, getting new revelations over time and stuff like that. It's just coming all at once. Um, you could get Whiplash. That's kind of what I've been getting a little bit like, oh my gosh, I barely finished with this like uh, futuristic samurai world. And now we're off to uh, retro gang world. And it's, it's. Uh, oh, we're already past that. Yeah, we're, it was, it went to New Capenna which I did not like the draft environment for at all. Yeah. I'm glad that is over because now the new thing is uh, the Battle for Baldur's Gate, which is a set that was specifically designed for not the standard format, which I find interesting. It was designed for the commander format. Yeah. And so, you know, you could get a bit of fatigue from that. I'm experiencing that a little bit. And maybe you're returning to old worlds faster. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's funny how you and I joke about the old Kamigawa block being one of the worst, uh, you know, (laughs) experiences of magic in the history of magic. And then the new Kamigawa block being top three all time, which shows that these guys are smart. Like, they're trying new things. They're figuring out what the problems are. They're not even afraid to go back to a place that was a disaster and show that they can do it right. Well, not only that, but then this is another uh, another thing that benefits from not having the multiple set blocks is having just the one set and then moving on is the feedback loop is much faster now. It's much tighter. Instead yeah. of having to wait for the entire block to play out before you get legitimate feedback of, okay, what worked, what didn't, what can we incorporate into design for the work in progress right now, 
because once you have a block that's in design, like that's three sets. Like once that reaches a certain point, you can't make changes to it anymore. And so the feedback loop is a lot longer. Like the lessons learned from the original Kamigawa block probably took two or three years before they actually started showing up in the cards mm. themselves. That's interesting. This is the same thing that is happening with uh, Disney Plus and all of the Star Wars shows. Ooh, <laughs> good. We'll be talking about this later on. Okay, there's one other thing I want to talk about before we move on from Magic. So in, in any... Wizards of the Coast have long promoted the idea of a local game store. Excuse me. Their, their methods for distributing product incentivize there to be some kind of local place where you can go and play with your friends so that you have a place for it not just to be magic, but also to be the gathering. So they you know only give the bulk like um, distributor level discounts to you if you have a legitimate game store and you can prove it and you hold events and you, it's a place where people come and get together. So typically what happens is you'll go one or two days a week and play with your friends and they'll put on you know officially sanctioned tournaments and give prizes, either prizes in the form of additional magic cards or prizes in the form of store credit to the store that you're going to. So my local store gives store credit and they give me a little card that it stores my store credit on. So whenever I, you know, win a couple of matches and then I get some store credit, I swipe my card. This last week when I swiped it, it showed that my total was exactly $69.00. Nice. And I swiped it and I looked at the display pad and saw that and I looked up at the cashier and we had this mo this bro moment. And I said, <laughs> and I said, Nice. And he was like, nice. <laughs> Excellent. What did you do great. with that $69 to store credit, Ben? So I used it to register for a double master's draft. So the most recent, a double master's 2022, not to be confused with double master's 2020. Now, hang on a second. I have to, I have, I have to say this because I was sending you spoilers. Like, like they would leak which cards were going to be in double masters. I'd been sending you spoilers in that for weeks and the responses that i got for you were so <laughs> like i couldn't care less and then oh you just you drive you drive me nuts you drive me nuts oh I don't, josh I, you need okay i know that you're smart enough to have comprehended what i said to you what i said to you was not i am not interested in magic cards nor was it <laughs> i'm not interested in double masters please repeat back to me what i said to you that i wasn't interested in uh i sent to you a handful of examples of look at the reprints that are in double masters isn't this amazing and you're like i mean i guess and i like dude how can you not be excited and you said you tell me like you asked me specifically what cards are you excited about like being reprinted like you sent me a list of like 15 cards oh it was longer than that <laughs> <laughs> but i mean i i literally at that point when you asked me that question i scrolled through the entire spoiler every card that was being released in double masters and i typed you out Every one of them that I thought was going to be such a good benefit to have it reprinted into Magic. Apparently, I can do that with box office film releases, but not with Magic cards. Yeah, yeah. where's your brain at, man? This is why <laughs> you're never going to make it as a Magic content creator, buddy. You're just not, you're not dedicated. You, you're not, no, your soul's not I can't, in it. I can't just look at a list of 250 cards. Like, it, it just bores the crap out of me. Oh. But I can go sit in a draft pod. So let me tell you what happens. Okay. So, because the double, because of the way Wizards prices this, and the way that they've packaged uh, cards at certain rarities, these packs of Magic cards are more valuable than a regular pack. So they cost more; they're about ten dollars each instead of about five dollars each. So that's why they call it Double Masters, I guess, because it costs twice as much. Well, rightfully so; they're reprinting some of the most valuable cards in Magic. So go ahead. Well, yeah. So as I found out, so 
uh, I went, and normally what happens is my son and I go up and register at the same time, and then they charge us at the register our entry fee. In this case, since it's a draft format, you pay for the packs that you're about to open in a little bit extra for prize support that gets distributed amongst all the players after the tournament's over. So uh, it was it came up $50, and I was like, oh, that's a lot. And they're like, oh, is your son playing also? Oh, <laughs> Bazinga, got you. Oh. Yeah, so it was a hundred bucks just for two people to play this thing, and the place was packed. We had forty-eight players there because they're reprinting some of the most valuable cards in Magic. I keep saying this, and it's like you're yeah. not hearing me. So, so my friend next to me showed me. He's like, "Look at this. This card could be in one of these packs you open," and it and it was selling on the internet for seven hundred and fifty dollars. No words. I've been telling you this for weeks. Like the okay. reprints. I know, but what's the point of looking at, at, at pictures of that for someone else? Because now I'm here firsthand. And I'm experiencing it myself. So there's 48 players, and the store's having a crisis because they expected maybe 12. And they got four times as many as they expected. So <laughs> it was 7 p.m. on a Friday, and they were looking at like a seven rounds of Swiss. Like getting out of there at 3 a.m. at the earliest. Nice. That's, that's glorious. That's hardcore gamer moment right there. Yeah, so they're like, all right, guys, we know probably not all of you signed up for this, so what we're going to do is we're going to break this up. And they're like, anybody that wants to stay late and play as many rounds as it takes to declare an overall winner, uh, go to this side of the room. And anyone that only wants to play three rounds and cut your lot, you know, and just if you got 3-0, you get prizes and leave, go to this side of the room. And it was about 50-50. And then that brought down the number of rounds that those other guys were going to play from 7 to 5, and it worked better for everyone. Oh yeah, that that cuts like three hours out of the day. So I went to the three because I didn't I I didn't want to stay there till three a.m. I've learned my lesson about that. Um, and I sat down on my draft pod and I looked around the table and there was a lot of people that almost never play Magic and I know because I'm listening to the things that they're saying. They're like, "How do we draft again? Like, what do I do? You know?" And and all around, like, <laughs> without exception, like every one of the other seven players at this table is just like clueless. Uh. Only one of them didn't have gray hair. <laughs> All right. The kid across from me was like a 19-year-old college student, and I think the rest were either my age or older. So this is when you lock eyes with your son. You both do a subtle nod to each other, put the sunglasses and the headphones on, and just know you're going to fleece these fools. Yes. Okay. Josh, you went right to the right place, and this is the part that I want to talk about, and I hope everyone can relate to. <laughs> I immediately knew in my head I was going to go undefeated and blow these guys away. One, they were going to pass me the best cards, and I was going to get to have the most overpowered deck. And two, I was going to outplay them and win easily. <laughs> so the draft started. I opened up my first pack, and right on top is one of the most powerful cards in the history of Magic. Oh, Ben, what'd you open? Mana Vault. And it wasn't just Mana Vault, it was... You opened Mana Vault in your... It was the borderless foil Mana Vault. I looked it up in between picks, and it was going for $100 online. So, so much for my entry fee. Okay, so I'm having a fangirl moment, listeners. Like, Mana Vault is in the vintage cube that we play, like, twice a year. It is definitively one of the best cards ever printed, and you opened the foil alternate art borderless like creme de la creme most premium version of it yeah uh, it, it was great show, i was very show, happy to sh- see show that. it to me right now like you put that damn card <laughs> on camera okay yeah yeah i got it right here in this binder that i use for keeping those kinds of cards safely but like you said i haven't um <laughs> i should probably have it double sleeved or something like that no absolutely you should you should have it in one of those like solid card jackets 
with like a little sticker that was certified its freshness. USDA selected. FDIC approved. So, there it is. Oh! Oh, tell me those little gold parts in the middle are, are foily too. Yeah. Oh man. I'll put a I'll put a photo in the show notes. Ooh. Anyway, so I knew my draft was gonna go good when I opened up a hundred dollar card, first pick, first pack. Now, this format, because of the way they package these packs and why they're more valuable, is they put two rares in every pack. And they decided that that would feel bad in a draft that if you opened up a pack and had two good rares, you'd only be able to pick one of them and have to pass the pack. So this format specifically allows you is no specifically requires you to pick two cards from the first pack ah, and then one thereafter. Very nice. I like that. This was too complicated for my table. Ever just just the first one, guys. Listen, open it, two cards, then it's just one from there on out. Like not hard. That was too complicated too complicated. Got all <laughs> jacked up. So I was sitting there for like 5 minutes while they're trying to work it out and I'm just kind of seething in my head. I shouldn't be. I like I was they, they were genuinely excited. They were enjoying themselves and stuff like that. It was it was a, it was a good time. Yeah, settle down, Spike. You just wanted to get to the part where you get to kick everybody's butt. I totally did. So <laughs> I started putting together a really good blue white momentary blink deck with just yes. like with mole drifters and ether snipes. I even picked up a hostage taker. And hostage taker, when it comes into play, it steals their guy, and then you can cast it. And then I blink it and steal another guy and cast it too. So all of a sudden, every creature they've cast, I have. That's 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 fantastic. It was, and it was great. So just as I predicted, first round I won easily 2-0. Second round I won easily 2-0. Third round I'm just sailing high. I get matched up against the college kid that sat across from me that that didn't even know how to draft, and he roasted me game one because <laughs> I'm playing this deck that doesn't even start doing anything till like turn three or four. He went one drop, two drop, three drop. Haste, haste, haste. Ooh. And he'd done like 15 damage to me before I even played a card. Yeah, you're, you're already way too far behind. So I shuffled him up, you know, looked at my sideboard and was like, okay, I, I need to regroup here. Maybe he just got lucky and I kept a hand similar to the hand I had first time, but this time I had the information and he roasted me again the exact same way. <laughs> and I lost 2-0. <laughs> Now, this was a bad matchup for me, just the kind of deck I'd built and the kind of deck he had. Right. But I think I could have beat him if I was really trying to do, like, if I had respected him as a player and respected his deck, I would definitely not have kept that hand. I would have mulliganed more aggressively. I would have known what I was looking for. I would have played tighter, and I probably would have stood a chance. I see. So you just um, fell into that trap where, like, your first two opponents didn't really know what they were doing. And so then you assumed the third one was going to be the same. Yes. Ah, uh, Ben, you see, this is what separates you from the pros. The pros sit down. They don't care if they're sitting across from a seven-year-old kid. They're going to treat him as if he's Johnny Magic himself and, and, like, think about every card that kid plays as if it's going to be their death. Yes. And, and so I was, after this was all over, I was pondering my life lesson here. You know, what is it about my personality? And this could just... This is a podcast about games, life, and other things. You and love, I don't mean you, that like... You're doing this again. You love taking these little snippets of magic and try to like, how can I... What can I learn from that and apply to my to my cosmic existence? Do you not think that, that those kinds of propensities in a game could would exhibit themselves in other aspects of your life? Uh, I, so, yes. I mean, I, I understand that there are translations that you can make and lessons that you can learn that can be universally applied. I'm just... 
I'm always so tickled by how you so deliberately <laughs> look for them and then try to like process them in this formalized way, like throughout like your 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 time on Earth here. I believe deeply and profoundly that participating in games like this don't just it isn't just a, a mindless outlet. I think it it reflect it's a mirror that reflects your soul. And I went into this and I was felt gracious towards those other people but i also wanted to pound them into the dirt (laughs) (laughs) and i overestimated my own abilities and underestimated their own chances and that led me to making some chance taking some chances i shouldn't have taken and making some decisions i shouldn't have made that led to my defeat that sounds like the lesson that every like 20 something year old guy learns when they finally figure out they're not immortal yeah well i apparently still need to learn that lesson I need to stay humble, stick to the fundamentals, like you said, and then I won't get caught off guard by situations like that. I feel like at the heart of it is not underestimating people and not overestimating myself. So let me ask you a couple of uh, side questions that I would have loved. Like if I would have loved to be in that draft pod with you so much. But like uh, did were you ever passed a card that was so profoundly good that you just had to like smack the guy sitting next to you? Like, why aren't, why, no, no. Give me whatever it is that you took and you trade it for this card because this is the one that you meant to take. Like, did that happen? Yes, kind of. There was another thing that happened. In this set, they, Wizards of the Coast made a decision that they were going to include this land that, that could be used for any two colors in Magic, and you didn't have to decide until you built your deck. Okay. Which land are we talking about? Uh, I forget the name of it. It's a common land. It shows all five colors on it, and then it just has the symbols at the bottom, and it says, when you build your deck, circle two of these, and then this deck has those two colors. Oh, this wow. Okay. land has those two colors. Interesting. So there's one, of the, uh, there's one or two of those in every pack. I ended up with ten of them. Oh. Guys, play multiple colors. That makes it so easy. Yeah. Well, it isn't that they weren't playing multiple colors. It's that they didn't understand it, so they didn't play it. Like, I played against a guy playing three colors, and I beat him terribly, and then I asked him to show me his card pool, and he had four of those that he hadn't played. Like, what are you doing? You're playing... Yeah, okay. I can see what you're talking about. It's like, uh, if people get intimidated, like, if they're drafting something brand new. First of all, you need to know how to draft. Second of all, you gotta read all these cards, and if you're not familiar with the cards, oh man, this is a lot of text. Uh, forget it. Skip it to the next one. Yeah, so I ended up with ten of those. And I played all 10 of them. That was the most I've ever played of a single card in a draft that i gotten. But I think it's because there was two in every pack, which meant there were 16 at the table, which meant I got 10 of the 16 of them. And they were all, like, last three picks. Oh, man. Did they come into play tapped? Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter, though, because you get to pick which two colors they tap for. Right, exactly. So I had perfect mana every game, but my deck was just kind of slow. I was a turn slow against a, a, a sly deck, basically. Anyway, life lesson... Be humble, stick to the fundamentals, don't underestimate other people, don't overestimate yourself. All right, so you paid 100 bucks for this draft for you and your son. Did your son get anything valuable out of it, or did he do well? Yeah, he got a couple good cards, too. So it sounds like you guys got all of your investment back and then some. Yes. Outstanding. But as my wife likes to point out, that's not that's not money in our bank account. That's store credit. <laughs> okay, Alicia, if you're listening to me, I am an accountant, and I can tell you that if we were going to draw up a balance sheet for your household— these will be listed as an asset. Then has a Magic Gathering collection that goes right there underneath cash. They're not liquid assets, but they are an investment and a long-term asset, so they are worth something. That was beautiful. I, I We need to have more accountant corners like that. Thank you, Josh. You don't usually <laughs> take my side, so that was great. 
All right, Josh, we need to do a double feature for our main segment today. Uh, we promised two things. One, that we would deal with a kind of in-depth question that one of our user, one of our listeners had asked during episode 75 that we didn't have time for on that episode. And the other is that we have not taken time on the Bad at Magic podcast, of all places, and talked about the recent Star Wars television episodes on Disney+. Plus. Ben, I feel like both of these have the potential to be a full feature on their own. So which one do we want? <laughs> which one do we want to shortchange by going second? I think we're going to do Star Wars first. <laughs> Spoilers for Star Wars, everyone! All right. Well, that's one of the things I want to take issue with. Can you spoil something if it's happening in the middle of something we've been learning about our whole life? Yeah, you're talking about the fact that these TV shows are set between some of the movies that we've watched. Yes, so let's talk about that first. But th- there's one bit of groundwork I want to lay. So when, because it's been a while since you and I have like reviewed a movie or, or a new television show, and that is on the Bad and Magic podcast, we examine stories and games and life through the lens of magic. Uh, and so the basis that we use for that is um, Brandon Sanderson's Three Laws of Magic, and uh, well, plus three plus one, and then uh, we decide. Okay, so. In a magic system, there's hard magic and there's soft magic. Hard magic has specific, clear, understood rules and limitations where the reader, viewer, whatever, has a good understanding of how the magic works and what its limitations are. Then soft magic is vague and undefined and any rules or limitations are never clearly explained. No judgment on hard versus soft magic. There's reasons to use one or the other. We just figure out which it is and and talk about that and why whether or not they used it well in the story sanderson's laws of magic are number one an an author's ability to solve a conflict with magic is directly proportional to how well the reader understands said magic so there's a fundamental understanding that in order for us to follow the story that's being told we need to understand the rules of whatever the magic system is if you have ever watched a sci-fi or a fantasy movie and then at the end it got wrapped up by something that wasn't previously explained in the film and you felt cheated or you felt dissatisfied or you felt like that came out of left field that's what we're talking about that's a violation of rule one that's right rule two the limitations of a magic system are more interested interesting than its capabilities and that just means that just uh it's much more interesting that your character does something awesome that that happens within the limitations that were set up that they do something unbounded that doesn't follow the rules superman is not interesting because he has no limits batman is very interesting because he's extremely limited and number three expand on what you've already said before adds adding something new harry potter we're looking at you stop adding new (laughs) crap just build on what you already have everybody's magic you don't have to keep introducing random gizmos every movie Okay. And then and then law zero kind of supersedes everything that like sometimes you might have an idea that that doesn't fit within these three laws, but err on the side of of awesomeness. Yeah, that's the rule of cool. If it's awesome, go with it anyway. Okay, so having established that groundwork, let's look at the uh, the um, recent offerings from Disney. Now, Josh, would you say that um, we should do these in the order that they occur in the story or that the order that they came out? So I think we should do them in the order they came out because that's the order that we consumed them. And Disney knew that we were going to consume them in this order. And so they they set things up in a certain way with that Uh, expectation. You're giving them too much credit. I don't know about that. Uh, I I did some research. and Okay, so Obi-Wan came out last, but chronologically it comes first. Right. 
So, but but, but they didn't wait to do it last because it, of some reason. It just that's the way it happened. Well, Mandalorian came first, and then Boba Fett came after that, and Mandalorian plays a role in Boba Fett. Yeah. Okay. Yes, those two do. Ha- okay, that's fine. Uh, so we do you want to start with Mandalorian then? Well, I so I wanted to have kind of a. a is there any overarching like administrative discussion we want to have in general I, I about do, the shows? I do. I do want to say that. Okay. There's <laughs> you got to understand the geopolitical forces at work here. In our lifetime, and that people will take this for granted in the in the future, we are transitioning from this very traditional, like you said, place where you go to the store and buy a DVD or go to the movie and watch a movie to where the internet has become ubiquitous and high enough bandwidth that you can have cinema quality movies in your home. And all of the major companies are trying to become a first-party provider in this space. Yes, cut out the middleman and just reap all of the rewards of subscription services. So just a few years ago, Disney bought Lucasfilm for like $4 billion, which I'm sure they've already made back and more. Way um, more. Just toys. Good board. So Disney became the owner of the Star Wars universe, and they're like, look, we can launch our own home-based streaming service that everyone will subscribe to and yeah we'll get a few folks by offering all of our back catalog that used to be those little like white uh clamshell vhs cassettes on everyone's uh (laughs) desk but we on their in their living rooms but we also need to offer new first-run content that's exclusive to our platform that will draw people in that they can't get anywhere else and that they don't already have at home so i will say game of thrones set this up um HBO has been doing series for a while where they do limited run, a handful of episodes, high production quality, longer run times, no commercials, and they do it, take it very seriously and they do it very well. Game of Thrones, I think, was the first one that really broke into the, the wide knowledge, like the, the public in general zeitgeist. Like everybody knew about Game of Thrones, even if they weren't watching it. And right. they kind of, it was kind of the proof of concept for this model for every other competitor in the space. Like, yes. You actually can have a big budget TV show like this that that is uh, uh, grade A film quality and still get re- incredible rewards from it. Now, Game of Thrones was only available on HBO, but HBO didn't have a streaming service at the time. So if you wanted to watch Game of Thrones, you had to have cable or cable television and you had to have HBO subscription and then you had to watch it at the time of week that it was on. They did have they, – they had a kind of pseudo-streaming service, but the only way that you had access to their streaming service is if you had HBO through their cable, through your cable okay. provider. So, Got it. So you could watch it on demand, but mostly the way it happened was the usual – like it came out on Sunday night. Yeah. Everybody watched it and was talking about it on the water, around the water cooler on Monday morning. Basically. Um, I did watch it streaming because I don't I didn't have HBO on a cable service, but I knew people that did, and they were kind enough to share it with me. Yeah, so that was with, that was the proof of concept for these other. Sure, companies. okay, I'll, I'll agree with that. So, so Disney is like, all right, we need to launch our Disney Plus service. The back catalog is going to pull people in, but it's not going to keep them paying. So, we need to be offering new things. Uh, one of the things they what they wanted to be their killer feature was a brand new, never before seen Star Wars property. Yes, and so that was. Kath- <laughs> <laughs> okay, go go ahead. I don't know where you're going with this, so I'm not going to. All interrupt right. You. So Kathleen Kennedy, the executive producer, storied his, you know, one of the top executive producers of of film content in the history of ever. Uh, 
said, all right, you know, I own Lucasfilm. I'm working for Disney. We're trying to launch Disney Plus. We need to pull in customers. I want to do a new Star Wars property. I know a guy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And she hired John Favreau and Dave Filoni. All right. So we cannot give enough love to these two individuals right now because they made Star Wars great again. Yes. Agreed. Yeah, we just kind of had the bad taste in our mouth of like the recent Disney film offerings of the the new uh, for, you know Ugh. Force Awakens trilogy. Force Awakens was a good movie, and then the other two were a train wreck. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and so we we had our hopes high that like when Disney Plus launched and we paid for it and got the Mandalorian, that it was gonna be good. Cautiously uh, optimistic. Yeah. So <laughs> John Favreau worked with Dave Filoni and wrote this thing. Dave Filoni, I hadn't heard of him before. I knew John Favreau, of course, from like Iron Man and and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all that kind of. And uh, the director of Elf. Yeah. He, you know, John Favreau has been in the background of Hollywood forever. Like you go back really far, and you can see John Favreau hanging out in the periphery. And and then Dave Filoni, I found out, uh, was one of the producers and directors for Avatar: The Last Airbender on Nickelodeon. Oh, uh, glorious! It shows like the the yes, yes, yes. All the all the things we love so much. It turns out like the same handful of people were involved with them. That makes perfect yeah. sense. Funny how that works. Now Kathleen Kennedy doesn't have quite as good of a track record. She's got a spotty track record. Let's say it's not that it it doesn't have good things on it, but it's like. It's not consistently good, like Kevin Feige, who's the number one executive producer of all time. You know, if you look back at her resume, her first movie she ever produced was E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Ooh, that's good to have on your resume. Right. And, and um, Jurassic Park is an executive producer. But then she also has clunkers like uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh. Or the, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan-directed Avatar, The Last Airbender movie. Yeah, I feel like the only people that even got yeah. Never mind. We're not going to talk about Airbender. I you, you know that um that YouTube channel with um with that guy uh, what's his name um George uh, what's his first name crap. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna say he, my th- he, he he does he does this skit where he's he's a director he's a director and a producer and he interviews himself and it cuts back and forth. Okay, it's called uh, oh pitch yes meeting. pitch meeting. I've seen all of these. Yes, so I, I imagine that she's like the person, the, the the producer. It's getting it's like, pitched what? too. You want, yeah. you, you want to make me money? Great, let's make money. Star Wars that makes money. Make me a Star Wars movie. <laughs> so for Avatar, this is this is the only thing I want to say. Somebody needed to walk in the room while they were planning Avatar, uh, the last Airbender movie, and tell her, "Hey, you realize the only people that are going to come see this are people that love the show, right? Which means that the people, the only people that are going to see this are the ones that are super dedicated to you getting everything absolutely correct." Yeah, it what a disaster. It really was bad. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, she's had as many clunkers as hits. So th- there's just the possibility that when she's behind something, it's not going to have that like rich, well thought out overall storytelling. It might just be mass produced property branded with the Star Wars logo, hoping that you'll be fooled and pay for it. Uh, in the video game world, that was called shovelware back in the day. Yeah. So. Equal, equal chances of getting a gem or shovelware. So we have the original trilogy, and then we have this time period defined on this timeline of about 10 years before the original trilogy, What's whatever's going on with Obi-Wan Kenobi, we know we're going to get a story there, and then about 10 years after Return of the Jedi and like what the world's like now in the power vacuum following the fall of the Empire and what's going on there. Oh. 
And that, that is where we pick up the Mandalorian. Oh, the Mandalorian. All right, well, right before I'm going to start launching into the gloriousness of the Mandalorian, I have one more thing to point out. Um, again, what we were talking about earlier with uh, uh, the magic switching from three set blocks down to one set blocks, the same thing going taking Star Wars and going from a giant Hollywood blockbuster that comes out once every three years, now you have a streaming show that comes out multiple episodes mm. once a year. So that feedback cycle is a whole lot shorter now. And so you can mm, interesting. You can really focus group the crap out of these shows. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion. For better or for worse. For, uh, in this case, I, it, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, absolutely. But with the people involved, I think it's been for the better. For example, uh, the Book of Boba Fett was, what, eight episodes? And, oh, seven episodes. And one of those episodes was basically a bonus episode of The Mandalorian. We didn't see Boba Fett in it, not once. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was the result of those focus groups. Yeah, it's I like, see. stop it. We just want to see more of Mando. We just want to see Baby Yoda. <laughs> Grogu. Oh, man. Okay. Can, oh, oh. We're, we're so, yes, I actually, so in the show notes, part of my notes, I broke down every single episode of Mandalorian because I love it so much. We're not, I'm not going to go into that level of detail. I was wondering if you wanted to do that, but I do want to dip into the story a little bit. So we, we're, we're going to this universe that they're assuming anybody that's going to pick this up already has some familiarity with the overall Star Wars universe thing. Yes. Blasters, lightsabers, the force, interstellar travel, you know, uh, varied landscapes of planets and various inhabitable galaxies, all those kinds of things. All right. I feel like we've talked about the Mandalorian before. We have to have on this show. So I don't, um, we've do... only mentioned it. We've never actually reviewed it. Like, this. I feel like I've done this before, but all right, whatever. Uh, we pick up five years after the destruction of the second death star and the empire is still there because shockingly you kill one guy and a galaxy wide empire doesn't immediately fall to pieces it just fractures into little bits that are still floating around out there. Fiefdoms. Fe- yes. Oh, that's such a that's the perfect word for it. Little imperial fiefdoms out there. And um, one of the best parts of the show is that stormtroopers are scary again. Yeah, they're still terrible at their job, but like they're everybody. They're all legit. We're not talking about like was that true in the Mandalorian? Okay, there was that one scene where they're sitting out in the desert, like guarding the ship, waiting for the guy to come back. <laughs> and there's like a can in the desert, and they're shooting at it with their blasters and missing and missing and missing. Yeah, that was that was just fan service, one hundred percent. But what I okay. but what I'm talking about is all the uh, the Star Wars movies. We are watching that from the perspective of like Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan. Like the opening right. scene of that movie is them taking down like everybody in a capital sized ship, and nothing can stop them. Now right. that's that scaled us back down to like the average Joe. Yeah, Mando is like the peak efficiency for what he is, but he's still just a guy. And Storm- right, he's a stud, but he's just a guy with some nice armor. Yeah, he didn't even have the nice armor at the beginning of the show. He had the yes. same armor everybody else had, and it was like stormtroopers were a big deal and they were a problem. And yeah, so it's it, it's nice to like scale this down. Like there's no more power creep. And like things are legitimate threats now. Uh, and there's so many like little snippets of the show that I, I don't I don't want to go into detail, but like he's, so, he's a bounty hunter. He gets a job to go find just basically follow this thing and bring back the guy that's attached to the other end of it. Would you say the intent is that Jin Jarin or however you say his name is is a, an iteration of the monomyth? I, I'm going to call him Mando because I still can't pronounce his name correctly. So Fine. I like that. Um, yes, I think it is. I think it absolutely won. It is the monomyth in that he goes through the entire hero's journey, and this is why we get so vested into this into this show. And I swear we've talked about this before because there are such great acting moments. And 
he is a faceless character. He takes off his helmet like twice in the entire series. And the rest of the time, he is just, there. there is no facial expression. But there is this moment where he is thinking about how it's like the third episode or the third or fourth episode where he turns the kid into like the baby Yoda. He turns it over to the Imperials and he knows it's bad and the kid doesn't want to leave. And he gets in his starship and he's going to fly away. And like he sees this little knob on his lever that the kid had been playing with. And just the body language that came off this guy, like you can feel the character moment of like this, like this was my job. It wasn't personal, but they conflicting with this idea of like, he just turned over a kid. Like that's not right. Yeah. Pedro Pascal is a talented actor. And, and the challenge of like having to display this, this steely, you know, emotionless personality and yet still portray this fondness and connection to this vulnerable little creature you know, without being able to reveal facial expressions was was well very well done. Yes. Like him being a good actor sold it. And it's just we loved like everybody loved and whether or not you realize this, think about it and you realize it was you love seeing this indestructible man grow cracks and the love seep in and you watched it happen in real time. And it was great. Yeah, I agree. So what would you say the magic system of the Mandalorian? Are we just is? skipping? You're, you're, you, no, no. Okay, you're not allowed to cut my Mandalorian discussion short here. I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm. I'm. I'm kind of skipping to the end, but we'll go back to the middle. So, like, well, uh, <laughs> what are the rules? Because it's not the same. Like, we we've we are used to spending time with Luke Skywalker. Luke's learning to use the Force. Mando is not learning to use the Force. No, they didn't. Like the first time the kid used the Force to help him, he had no idea what was happening. Like, he, right, but but there's no hint that Mando's going to learn to use the Force now or ever. Well, you no, know, there's no need for Mando to use the Force. But the fact that the Force still exists in this universe, and right. apparently it was so gone by the time the Empire had fallen that nobody, like people didn't even know what it was. And um, so there is a magic system, but it wasn't pertinent to this story. Like we're just talking about the, the technology or whatever the Star Wars stuff is, the things that we take for granted, the faster than light travel, the fact that there are some kind of material science that allows some armor to be better than others. There's a, a steel that can stop a lightsaber, for example. Yes. Okay, good. I, I think that is part of the magic system. They're kind of teaching us the rules. Like, hey, there's this steel called Beskar and it can stop lightsabers and he wants it. He doesn't just want a little bit of it. He wants more of it. And then he wants to give it to his friends so that they also have it too. Uh, we come, so and we come to realize that it was important to their religion as Mandalorians. And it only came from one planet. And that's the reason that it was bombed in the first place. And they were a warrior culture. Like, ah, oh, oh, everything about Mandalorians are freaking fantastic. Okay. So they've kind of got a religion that they're following. And that's part of this story too. Not even kind of. It is. They are war. They are a cult of like warrior monks that are, that's what the Mandalorian is that's what they have so, been since their prehistoric times on their home planet of Mandalore is they were warrior monks and that tradition just kept going and following them right up until this part where they're interstellar like badasses for lack of a better word to the point, why do you why do you feel like it was so important not to show your face it, why why was that part of their okay, so, warrior monk uh, tradition did you watch the second season of Mandalorian yeah. Okay. There's. They made it very clear that there is only one like that. Those are the hardcore ultra right wing zealots of the Mandalorian faith are the ones that never take off the helmet, and they had a specific word for it that escapes me at the moment. But like uh, Mando belonged to this really zealous uh, right wing group of the Mandalorians. There are Mandalorians that they are Mandalorians and they're trained and they do all the warrior monk stuff, but they're allowed to also live normal lives. I, I, I maybe it was m not meant to be sneaky, but that sounds like an approximation of some of the same things that exist among us in our culture. 
you know, how we have groups that are devoted to a certain ideal or religion or God, and some people that kind of distinguish themselves from those by doing additional things. Yes, we have people that go to church every Sunday, and then we have monks, and then we have priests and nuns. Like, these are all different tiers of the amount of dedication you want to give to this ideal. Okay, and somewhere amongst all of that is the dark saber. How does that fit into all of that? <laughs> so what you're talking... All right, so I have to talk about this first. So... Okay. Uh, there were several things that they did, and John Favreau, I love him to death for this. Um, there was a Cartoon Network CGI show uh, called The Clone Wars that ran for many years on Cartoon Network that was specifically the time period between Episode 2 and Episode 3. And Anakin and Obi-Wan were the main characters, and the first episode, Anakin gets a Padawan named Ahsoka Tano. And, like, this entire series is about them, about the Empire in the middle, in, like, neck deep in the Clone Wars. And that's just what all the plots are revolving around is the, the conflicts that involved in that, that. Were those characters voiced by Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor? I don't think so. Hmm. But anyway, um, the Darksaber and a lot of the Mandalorian like uh, lore was introduced to me originally through those cartoons. Okay. So uh, the Ahsoka Tano, the Darksaber, all of these things were in the back of my mind as I'm watching this Mandalorian show. And like uh, I, I, when it starts off and they're ticking all the boxes like, oh, uh, oh, they, you have to leave your weapons. I'm a Mandalorian. Weapons are part of my religion. Yep, that's absolutely true. He's not going anywhere unarmed if he doesn't have to. Like this is they're just ticking the boxes like the, of this continuity of, of intellectual property. Right. And then the last episode of the first season where freaking uh, Moff Gideon. Like his his ship gets blown up and he crashes and he cuts his way out of the ship with the dark saber. Like I gasped like a little schoolgirl in the room and because <laughs> it's it's the freaking dark saber. Like there is no way that you can make a black lightsaber in this universe without like it it, it has to be. That's the only thing it can be. Okay. So, yeah, th there are these artifacts that bear significance. That's part of the magic system that I'm talking about. Okay. The, the, they're, the, they're getting to this idea that there's this weapon that either has religious significance or actual, like, physics significance that it can do things that other weapons can't do. So the Darksaber was the lightsaber that was constructed by the first Mandalorian to ever become a Jedi. And so wow. it was made by the first person that kind of uh, ascribed to two different religions and melded them together mm. into this one weapon. Interesting. So I, I was, didn't know all of that. My consumption of the <laughs> ideas of Mandalorian, Mandalorian culture came from Knights of the Old Republic, okay. uh, the game series on PC. Uh, and I don't know if that's canon or not. I think they're consistent, roughly. I can't tell you if they are or not. Because Knights of the Old Republic 2 very much focuses around uh, kind of like trying to uncover the past of what happened to Mandalore and stuff like that. It was it was, gl it was glassed by the Imperium. Right. <laughs> yes. Same, similar to what happened to Alderaan. Yep. Like, oh, you all are too dangerous. Okay. Um, Mandalorian, I think if we haven't made it clear, was a fantastic series, you know, Really well done. It was it was received well by the audience. It was considered ninety three percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's interesting to note the discrepancies between the critic reviews and the user reviews. The user reviews were ninety one percent, so it was only like a two percent discrepancy, which which shows that it really was good. It it was what Disney was hoping it would be. It was that killer app for the Disney Plus launch. It was it was so good. It was so good, and it, and it transcended like the, everybody that I've talked to that has seen it liked it. Um, my parents that don't it, care for Star Wars at all watched it and loved it. Like my my siblings, everybody I've talked to. 
it was fresh and familiar at the same time. You know, it, it followed the kind of formula of like an old western yes where you just had this lone ranger going from town to town trying to accomplish his goal and getting his foot caught in the door everywhere he goes i swear we've had this conversation before Lis- we kind of have listeners if we, we did after season one i'll sh- i'll figure it out in the show notes l- listeners chime in on on the social media i swear we've done this already <laughs> not all of it okay so you know you had peter pascal as as Dingerin, you had carl weathers Giancarlo Esposito, Gina Carino, uh, Nick Nolte, just a really good like ensemble cast. But the stakes were real. Like you said, the stormtroopers were dangerous. People were getting hurt. It wasn't just like, you know, everything could just be hand waved away. So, and we didn't know what was going to happen. These are new characters, new story. Their destiny isn't known. So we're just finding out as we go along. This isn't like the prequels where we know that baby Anakin isn't going to not turn into Darth Vader. <laughs> right. And you're right. Like, the stakes are high because death could be permanent in this universe. Okay. And then there was a little bit of, you know, touching and hinting at Boba Fett. Uh, Luke shows up at the very end, and that was nostalgic and awesome at the same time. That was uh, that was a great example of the, of the power creep that I was talking about because we found our heroes. Like, he assembled the best crack team of warriors that he could find. And, like, using, like, the skin of their teeth, they barely defeated the enemy. And then they found themselves trapped in an impossible scenario where they were all just going to die, and they knew it. Yeah, Moff Gideon had those dark troopers that were just impossible to defeat. They were Beskar-armored, like, droids. And they were punching through a blast door. Like, you're you're done. You guys are toast. And then Luke flies in on his X-Wing and makes them all look like uh, battle droids from Episode 1. Like, it was... That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. When you're focused on the Jedi... There's no stakes. And yep. again, it was kind of a deus ex moment where, oh, the Jedi showed up and saved everyone. Yay. But like the music swell and the feel like they earned it. Like it was rule zero. Yeah. It was super It was awesome. rewarding. And it was the fulfillment of, of Din Djarin's te- uh, quest. He was trying to get Grogu to the Jedi so that he could get trained in the ways of the Force. <laughs> Side note. The first episode where Baby Yoda was shown, and then he turned into this major character on the show. Everybody's called him Baby Yoda forever. Um, There were so many Etsy like knockoffs of this thing because John Favreau worked so hard to make sure that none of this uh, merchandise was released ahead of time. So there was no officially licensed Disney merch for Grogu before he was like shown on screen. And so all of these little independent shops got the jump on Disney when it came to trying to sell this stuff. And I can only imagine the sheer volume of cease and desist letters that had to like be distributed. <laughs> Disney's lawyers the world. were working overtime. Yes. If you okay. so if you, nine year old grandmother, sew one more freaking baby Yoda for your Etsy store, we are gonna sue you into the ground. So obviously they hit a home run when it came to like profitable marketing you know, souvenirs and t-shirts and stuff. I don't know about you, but when I went to Disney World and went to this, you know, Star Wars land, like, Grogu was freaking everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> uh, I'll put a link to the the Kevin George um, pitch meeting for, for Mandalorian. And, and you know, he kind of goes, at, at one point, the producer gets actual dollar signs in his eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> I have a Grogu doll that's about a foot tall that sits in the background of every one of my virtual teleconferences when I work from home. Mm, this is interesting. I wonder I wonder how many of our listeners have s- some form of Grogu mer- merchandise because this you know this only came out what three years ago and yeah it, it's virtually 
ubiquitous. They really nailed it. Okay. Um, so the magic system is the Beskar steel, the, the religion of the Mandalorians, the mystery of the force, the dark troopers, and then the dark saber right at the end. I feel like, like you said, other than a little bit of power creep with Luke showing up, it felt like we understood the rules, we understood the stakes, and everything happened within the rules that were set up. I think so, too. Like, the Force is still wibbly-wobbly, really undefined, but Grogu didn't do anything that we wouldn't expect any other trained Jedi to be able to do. Right, or even somebody that just was vaguely Force-sensitive to kind of try something. Yeah. Like, lift someone up or yeah it, it never felt like they were doing anything to really like break the rules yeah so i'm i'm seeing Matt, use of the magic system this is soft magic yeah star wars is very soft magic but again it's not directly impactful to storytelling it just kind of exists in the universe where they are and so hmm. that gets a pass for me i think it's fine I mean, there's a scene where he um, fights someone with a lightsaber with a Beskar spear. And it's important that you understand the rules of all of that in order for that to matter and have the stakes that it does. Yes. Uh, you're, you've been trained from the beginning of Star Wars that lightsabers are unstoppable. And all of a sudden you've got somebody that's blocking a lightsaber with a physical object. And that, that will blow your mind if you weren't aware of it. Right. Okay. Um, I th- I think that's about it for The Mandalorian. You want to move on to Bo- the, the Book of Boba Fett? Well, uh, as a transition to that, we can say that in the second season of The Mandalorian, we saw Boba Fett show up without his armor uh, in a couple of different times, like towards the end of the season. Yeah, so um, Din Djarin gives, Mando, uh, gives um, Boba Fett his armor kind of out of respect and, and because he helped him out. So in uh, season early season two, Mando was on, a, on his quest or whatever, and he found a guy wearing Boba Fett's armor on Tatooine. And he, he was just a guy, and he put the armor on because, like, oh, people think I'm a Mandalorian, and they're, they're, they don't cause as much trouble. And he was, like, the sheriff of his town or whatever. And Mando was like, you didn't earn that take that off that's offensive to me and my religion and they struck a deal and it, hijinks ensue and mando got the armor as part of that deal and wow the fact that you compared that to like a priest makes me think what would that be like in the real world like if you went to a town and there was a guy who wasn't a priest but he was wearing all of the, the regalia the, yeah all of the regalia and people were respecting him because of that but he didn't really have it and you knew you were a priest and you're like dude you're not a priest. You got to take that off. Yeah. So every go back and watch the Mandalorian, and every time, like when he's talking to that guy specifically, he goes, "Take that off right now." Like it hits a little different when you realize, "Oh yeah, this is the core of everything this guy believes, and he is yeah. going to rip your head off with his bare hands." That's good. I think that's part of the magic system too. Has to be. If you think of it as a faith, and that he's consistent in his observation and devotion to his faith. Well, and there are moments where he has to question it. Like, there was a, a couple of times when he had to take off his helmet, and that was one of the things he was forbidden to do. That could be a um, a substitute for anything arbitrary a religion asks of you. Yeah. Oh, and again, props to Pedro Pascal as an amazing actor, because there was one scene where he, in the first season, he had to do it in front of a droid where he just kind of sat there for a minute. But there was another scene in the second season where he had to do it as part of infiltrating an Imperial base to not seem like he was out of place. Like he had to take his right. helmet off and interact with other people in order to, to pull this off. And again, it was this great character moment because you know, like this is against every core belief, but he's doing it because of those cracks because he's trying to find Grogu and he's so desperate to do that. And it's just, ah, 
he made this huge sacrifice for this kid and you and it just it just makes you feel good inside yeah nice Okay, so so now we know that Boba Fett is alive in this universe. Well, Boba Fett's it's, it's, armor was spit up from the Sarlacc pit. We had no idea he was still alive until he showed up at the end of the Mandalorian. Yeah, yeah. So so we're already we're off on the wrong foot because I got to be honest, Josh. Um, Boba Fett, you know, when he was in um, Return of the Jedi, you know, and he got defeated and thrown down in the Sarlacc pit. I wanted that to be the end. Like Luke and, and Han <laughs> and Leia and R two and three PO defeated him. Uh, kind of in a chumpy way, though. Like, I don't know. Like, Yeah, you're right. It was kind of lame. But still, it was supposed to be... F- like, how was that supposed to be real danger for any of our heroes if it wasn't a danger for the bounty hunter? <sighs> okay, so all we know about Boba Fett up to that point is he's a ruthless bounty hunter that, that keeps company with the likes of Jabba the Hutt. And, Dar- and Darth Vader. And Darth Vader, like, went out of his way to... No disintegration. <laughs> and then Boba Fett right. respond. So we know that he's ruthless, and we know that Darth Vader counts on him to do his dirty yeah, work. Yeah, and, and he has worked for Vader before, and and he isn't and he isn't dead. So you know he's good at his job because Vader will kill you for like missing the punctuation on the memo you send him in the morning. <laughs> we still need that. We still need that Death Star of the Office series. <laughs> and and apparently Boba Fett had disintegrated one of his previous targets. And still didn't earn death from Vader on it to a point where now it's a thing. It's like a gag between them. No disintegration. Yeah, hey, no disintegration. Yeah, this time. yeah. When are you gonna let Bucko. that go? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so we our expectations are kind of high because this is just another uh, new set of characters, another uh, area that we're exploring in this post Return of the Jedi Star Wars universe. We already cut Boba Fett has this cachet of being a, a lesser character, but cool and kind of seen as as interesting amongst a lot of the fans. I will say right now that everything I wanted Boba Fett to be, Man- Mando is instead from The Mandalorian. And Boba mm. Fett's more approachable. He's more talkative. He's uh, like this. The, the story of this series is he crawls out of the Sarlacc pit. He gets abducted by Tusken Raiders. He earns their respect from the tribe and gets trained and in in, brought into that culture. Sure, a-, a la Dances with Wolves, a la Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, <laughs> a la Avatar, all of those things. Well, I really appreciate that. He's taken that. in by the natives and, and changes his heart and soul and, from being a ruthless bounty hunter to being connected with a group of people. And I really like that they, they gave like a real rich depth to the Tusken Raiders because in the cinematic universe up to that point, they were just yeah. the throwaway. Caricatures. Yes, they were stand-up bad guys oh we like battle droids we slaughter as many of these we want it doesn't impact the storyline because they're right. just they don't people. have families they don't have lives they they don't they're just they're, they're just yeah. human human sized insects yes exactly and but no we humanize them they have a culture they are a people and they are important and we saw all that through the eyes of boba fett the outsider yeah, they did pretty good with that. Like making you feel connected to the young ones, the elders, the teachers, all of those people. Without speaking any of the language, which was awesome. And then we the, the transitions, you're kind of doing it half and half where Boba Fett's trying to put the pieces of Jabba the Hutt's old criminal empire back together. Basically, he walks in and says, oh, who's the boss? I'm the boss. That's right. And then just starts taking Do you feel over. like you understood why? Why he did that? Uh, yeah. His motivation, he said, was he was sick of working for people that were idiots. It's like, I'm sick of working for these fat, lazy, aristocratic bureaucrats that don't get it. that don't have the value. They're like, oh, go kill this guy. And they have no idea the effort that it's going to take to do that. 
or the fact that they are taking a human life merely because this person is inconveniencing them. So it was this weird mix of chaotic evil, not chaotic, of lawful evil, where he thought he could do a better job. Okay. So is that where you would assign his characters lawful evil? Absolutely, yes. Hmm. He has a strict set of codes that he's going to follow, but um, there's nothing that he's binding. Like, he's not bounded by any outside jurisdiction of what he is and is not willing to do. Okay, so he comes across um, Fennec Shand, who's a character that we'd interacted with in some of the other properties and in stuff. In Mandalorian. And who also, like him, had been left for dead. Yeah, Man- uh, Mando was hunting her down in one of the episodes that he was on Tatooine and shot her and left her for dead in the middle of the Tatooine desert. Which, I mean, appropriately, if you're going to leave anybody for dead anywhere, it's going to be the middle of Tatooine. There's no way they're coming back. Except she did come back because Boba Fett found her and dragged her off to some... It, I think it's hilarious that in, in his limited access to resources... Like, he's trying to get her medical attention. The best he could do is he found the equivalent of a cosmetic surgeon. A tattoo parlor. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, well. It looked like that. It's like, I can't fix her, but I can replace her guts with robot guts. I'm like, well, okay, I guess that's going to have to do Frankenstein. Yeah, okay, so you're already getting to what I think to be one of the problems with the magic system of this additional property. Okay. It, but this isn't unique to the Star Wars universe. They're just overdoing it, and they do this a lot. Like, yeah, we'd already kind of established that Darth Vader and Luke had prosthetic limbs that looked for all intents and purposes to be a real limb. Right. But that's just a limb. It's not digesting your food or pumping your blood. But theoretically, like, it's an extrapolation. I, I, I don't think that's breaking the rules. I think... If you can, okay, I if you is. can replace a guy's arms and legs with robot legs that are indistinguishable from the real thing, there's no reason you couldn't do it with other parts of the body too. Hmm. All right, so we have yeah, so we got all these new characters, and if Mandalorian is a western, this is like a, it's also a western, but like you said, the the character has a different alignment, and so it's more like a. I'm the new sheriff in town. It felt like that. It, he's definitely not the sheriff, but it felt like he, um, it, it almost felt like blazing saddles in that way where he walks mm. into this established scene in this scenario. And then he has to like insert himself and assert his authority over it. Now it introduced some other characters. There's, um, Chris Santon, who's just freaking awesome as just, you know, this like Wookiee thug. That's like chaotic evil. <laughs> yes. The gladiator Wookiee that, uh, just yeah, that's great. I knew as soon as he walked on screen, like there is no way that they're going to have a named Wookie that is not going to be a fault. Like you're going to be here for the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah. Now, overall, okay. So Mandalorian was seasons one and two, uh, kind of spaced out to keep the Disney Plus audience coming back, and then Boba Fett was like, they're that I don't know. They were pausing, resetting on Mandalorian. They needed something else, and so Boba Fett was released in 2021. It didn't quite do as good as Mandalorian. Uh, for a good reason. I don't know. Like the the reason that I love the Mandalorian, I think it hits so well, is that character development. Whether you knew it or not, like the fact that Mando didn't talk a lot, the fact that he didn't have a face, it lets you fill in a lot of the blanks with your own like emotional sticks. And it was very well written and like there was like there was feelings there, character development. This one like there's a little bit of development with Boba Fett, but there's a lot more acting work to be done on because you can see him the whole time. 
He is not the blank slate. You don't get to insert yourself into the scenario. This is clearly Boba Fett doing these things for reasons that may or may not jive or ring true with people. Like you asked me earlier, what were his motivations? Do you feel they were clear? The fact that you didn't have a strong sense of why he was doing what he was doing speaks to the fact that the storytelling wasn't as strong. Yeah. I mean, they would give little, you know, each episode is its own mini story. Like there was the 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 train that was running drugs through their territory and you could see how that was hurting the sand people. And like, I, I was very clear on his motivations when it came to those kinds of things. Yeah. But his long-term goals, like why is he doing the things with Jabba's yeah. empire? Why does he, why does he want to be the sheriff of this town? Right. Right. So there's an interesting discrepancy. So this one was 66% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which is really low and uh, 57% from the audience. So there's this nine point discrepancy as opposed to the two point discrepancy on Mandalorian. So you can see a little bit more of this idea that, that maybe even if the critics saw there were some things to admire about it, the fans weren't pleased. It, almost half. Well, I will say this. The best episode of the Book of Boba Fett was episode five, which was the bonus episode of, Mand- of the Mandalorian, where the entire yes. episode, we didn't see Boba Fett. We saw Mando learning about the the dark saber and like and meeting back up with Grogu after he dropped him off with Luke Skywalker. Yeah, it was just so great. Yeah, I don't know how they planned that, but it was good and then and then and then he crashes into Boba Fett and becomes part of the, you know, the big gang battle for the town at the end that they built up to for like four episodes. Oh no, Boba Fett crashed into him. Boba Fett sent uh, what's her face? Fennec Shaw. Like, oh, we Yeah, Fennec Shan to go recruit him and say, yeah. "Hey, I, I need some hired muscle cuz we're about to have a gang war." Yes. And Mando's like And Mando was like, "I'm in." Like, I got nothing better to do. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, so what's the magic system of the book of Boba Fett? It's the same. Uh, the, I, I don't know. I feel like there's new ones, like not dying. Like everybody just doesn't die. Like in Mando, some people <laughs> died, but in this one, like Boba Fett doesn't die. Fennec Shand doesn't die. The sheriff uh, friend, played by Timothy Oliphant, doesn't die. Everybody just doesn't die. Well, uh, there was so there's Bacta. Like uh, Boba Fett had his big Bacta tank yeah. that he had to sleep in for like a month to like heal all the Sarlacc acid burns. Apparently, <laughs> um, uh, uh, there was. The rancor, like he was gifted a okay, rancor. That was, yeah, that, <sighs> that was a bit of the magic system too. Like Boba Fett had the uh, "I can talk to animals" kind of thing. Oh, they, 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 the predator respects the other predators. Yeah, uh, I think that was supposed to be a big payoff, but it just didn't feel well, like it because they didn't, they didn't earn it. Like they dropped off the 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 rancor and they had a ten minute conversation where they talked, they talked about how oh people used to ride these into battle, and I'm like, as soon as he said it, I'm like. He's gonna ride this in a battle in the last episode. Okay, I got a great, uh, I got a great um, fact for you. Do you did you notice what actor was playing the Sarlacc trainer? Ooh, no, I don't think I did. Uh, not the Sarlacc, no, uh, the the, the um, Rancor trainer. Rancor trainer. Did you notice who it I was? I did not. Who was that? Danny Trejo. Was it? Oh, you know what? <laughs> as soon as you said that, yes, you're right. That was Danny Trejo. Yeah, Danny Trejo was the was the Rancor trainer. Love it. Oh, Danny Trejo. Yep. Sponsor the podcast. <laughs> Trejo's Tacos. Okay. People. So another part of what I felt like was the magic system was because we lived in this town on Tatooine where we had like these um, conflicting interests of people holding power, but none of them were particularly militaristic in nature. There was, there was this situation of politics on a lawless planet. And it felt like, 
I, I actually enjoyed some of that interaction. Like we're sitting in the room trying to form uneasy gang alliances, and they're like, "Are you going to be the powerful one, or is the new? Who should I align myself with? Who's good? I'm trying to predict the winner of this conflict so that at the end I'm on the right side." Yeah, I do like a couple of times where like he rolled in to talk to the mayor. It's like, "Oh, we're here to see the mayor. Oh, let me just one second. Let me know he's here." <laughs> and like the door locks all engaged, and like, "Oh, son of a!" And they have to like basically kick in the door to go see him. Yeah, I like that too. And the character that was played by the like. Uh, Fast-talking bureaucrat. I, I don't know who that actor was, but good job, that guy. He made me laugh a lot. Oh, he's – I think he's from uh, uh, Modern Family, I think. He's the, I think, oh, really? I think he's the dad, Modern oh. Family. Okay. Yeah, they tried to do that again in Obi-Wan with an Indian actor, but it, I, I don't know. It didn't quite hit as well for Oh, him. if you ever see that, that – act. all right, so we're going to talk about Obi-Wan in a minute. But that actor, he, that's just how he acts, like all of his characters. Yeah, he was also one of the characters in that uh, Eternals. The Eternals. Uh, and he was exactly yeah. the same. Yeah, same character. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we kind of, t- uh, like, was it in, yeah, it was, in the Boba Fett episode where we went and saw Mando, and he went to go see Grogu and try to see if, he just wanted to see him, but he was also kind of hoping that Grogu would come back, be done, and come back and be his friend again, or whatever, and then he met Ahsoka. So we're kind of hinting now that Rosario Dawson's going to have her own spinoff series that's going to happen next uh, year, uh, Ahsoka Tana. So we met Ahsoka originally, are we talking about Ahsoka? No. Strike that. I am talking about Ahsoka. So okay, um, we met Ahsoka in the second season of The Mandalorian in episode three. Bo-Katan mentions her, and then we see her in episode five. Oh, oh, Ben, Ben, Ben. You don't know the awesomeness that is Ahsoka Tana. Okay, so in the series, the Clone or the Clone Wars series, like she is Luke or uh, uh, Anakin Skywalker's Padawan. Okay. And Anakin and Obi-Wan are still like partners. They go do everything together. But Obi-Wan is very much the strategist. He's the high-level guy. He'll get his hands dirty, but he's always planning. Anakin is like the special forces, like, commander. It's like him and his guy Rex, which is his clone commander, and like a squad of guys and Ahsoka. And they're always doing, like, the impossible missions, like the wet work, like the crap that nobody thinks that you can do. And they're defying orders to get the job done and... Like, it really develops in Ahsoka's, like, act now, think later kind of mentality. Okay, so she is Anakin's Padawan. Yes, Anakin's Padawan. And what happens at the towards the end of the series, and this is so great for a character, is she gets framed for some crime, right? And uh, she's 100% innocent, but they have faked evidence or whatever against her, and she's going up on trial. And she's telling the Jedi Council, I didn't do this. And they go, oh, no, we know you didn't do it. And she's like, then get me out of this. And they go... Well, we can't. We have to obey the law. So if you're convicted, we'll have to follow whatever the the conviction protocols or whatever are. And then at the end of this whole thing, like they get the evidence and they unveil the traitor or whatever. And she comes walking out of the of the trial free and clear. And the councils, the the Jedi Council with Yoda and uh, um, Mace Windu, they're like, oh, it's so great that you got off scot-free. Welcome back. And she goes, no, screw y'all. You were going to let me hang for something you knew was wrong. I'm done with this. And she walks off. And so she wow. she never ended up actually becoming a Jedi, which is how she dodged execu- Order sixty six. Ah, interesting. There's, all right, so then she she saw the destruction coming, but she didn't see it. it she was just like, no, you guys are corrupt. I'm not. I'm not going to be part of it's, this. It, yeah, it's just like you guys. This this was uh, untenable. All, after everything that I've done for this order and for the Republic, and you were going to let me out to dry on a technicality. Now screw you. Where would you put her on an alignment chart? Ooh, oof. Um, probably chaotic good. Okay. All right. I like that. 
And, and Luke could work with that. He's like, all right, you can help me out here on whatever planet that was where we're training Grogu to be a Jedi. Uh, there's also some weird time skip stuff that happens. She gets uh, sucked into another, like, force dimension, which is why she doesn't <laughs> age a whole lot, whereas Anakin's an old man and she's uh... kind of middle-aged. Also, there's, like, very important reasons why her lightsabers are white and no other color, but we don't have to get into that. Okay. So Mando turns his Beskar spear according to his religion. Beskar can can only be used for defense and not for offense. So he turns it into a cute little uh, um, chainmail coat. Oh, we perfectly sized for Grogu. We can have whistling birds that can kill everybody in a room come out of your wrist, but they can't be made of Beskar. That's not well, actually. But they were made of Beskar, like she said. Like, oh, I'll make you a pauldron, and then I'll take the rest of. Okay, make those you just birds. found a flaw in, in the magic system. <laughs> You're right. Dang it. Okay, so he, he gives it, and we have this dilemma that's happening in the Boba Fett series where Grogu has to choose between continuing his training as a Jedi and going and joining Mando on whatever quest he happens to be on at Which the is a black or white logical fallacy. Luke puts that, that choice in front of him. Choose it felt like cheating yeah. to have Luke, yeah. Luke be like, all right, Grogu, you either, just like Yoda did to Luke in um, Empire Strikes yeah. Back, Either you stay here and finish your training and let your friends die, or you go there and abandon your training and you can never be a Jedi. Except Luke did end up becoming a Jedi after he went and abandoned everything that he thought he was going to do. I know, but I think I think it was a self-reference to that same scenario, that Luke was doing the same thing that Yoda did to him, to Grogu. I mean, it's an absolute false dichotomy. Luke could have gone with Grogu and then like as like a Padawan. Do you think Luke was doing it unknowingly? Like, he didn't realize he was doing the exact same thing Yoda did? It's, well, the same way that you end up becoming your parents. Hmm. Like, uh, I, that also shows in later on in the movies, and this is obviously the movies where um, Mark Hamill is had in the past, like, failed at be- being a Jedi teacher. And now we're seeing, like, he, that was the beginning. Like, we saw the bookends of it. Like, Grogu was his first student, and then we saw his last student, which was... Um, uh, freaking what's his face? Uh, oh gosh, from the new movies with the 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 freaking cross guard lightsaber. Whatever, doesn't matter. Like we saw the two ends of Luke's journey as an instructor in the Jedi arts, and they were both kind of failures. Like he's not a good teacher, is what we're getting across here. Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren, yes. So we see Grogu as his first student when he's trying to set up this Jedi Academy. And we see Kylo Ren as the last student he ever teached. And they're both kind of failures. And so from that, those two points, we can draw a line on a chart that indicates Luke is a bad Jedi trainer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I want to talk I, I want to talk about what you just described as a line on a chart. Because that's one of my problems with what's happening here. Here in the middle. Are we done talking about Boba Fett? Uh, I think so. If we want to talk, uh, we, we barely talked about Boba Fett. We kept talking about Mando. Uh, nah, we talked about it. <laughs> okay. We talked about okay, it as so much as it deserves to be talked about. It it, it was fine. It was 66% fresh. I think that's a that, good that's estimation. A, that is an excellent, yeah, it's like, I'm glad I watched it. I'm probably not going to watch it again. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to Obi-Wan, because Obi-Wan suffers from the problem, I think, of the line on the chart. Much more so than Mandalorian and Boba Fett that are happening in kind of unknown space with characters that we don't know their destiny. We go back to Obi-Wan Kenobi. We know where he came from. We know where he's going to end up. And now we're just getting a little bit of his story that we've only had hinted at by a few objects and a few throwaway lines in like the first movie. Yes. And they were really bounded by that because throughout the entire series, I was very aware that they cannot involve Luke in any of this 
because Luke right. had no knowledge that Ben was a was a Jedi Knight before. Okay, there was even a scene, and I didn't notice it, but one of my children did, where Obi-Wan was going to go see Luke, and he picked up a toy, and my son goes, hey, that's the toy that Mark Hamill was playing with in the original Star Wars in 1977. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah, oh, I was very impressed by that. I went and looked it up, and he was totally right. Uh, but I'm sure some you know prop designer went to great lengths to go and recreate that thing that Luke was playing with in the original Star Wars and show Obi-Wan getting ready to go give it to him as a gift. Yeah, that's that's really nice. Good good stuff there. Yeah. So this this was the, so I did some research on Obi Wan Kenobi, and apparently Obi Wan Kenobi was slated to be its own movie. Oh. But then Solo failed as kind of like a a, a spin off movie. Okay. And they axed it. Okay. And turned it into a TV movie that was going to be the next year's draw on Disney+. Plus. Okay. So this actually answers a lot of the problems that I had with the, with uh-huh. this show. Here, here is my thing. It, it had pacing problems. It had story problems. Here was my biggest problem with Obi-Wan is that I couldn't reconcile this because this is the first time I think this has ever happened. Is I really liked the progressive character development that we saw in Obi-Wan, reconciling where he was at the fall of the Republic yeah. and where he was at the beginning of the movies. I think his character arc was was phenomenal, but the rest of the storytelling was a disaster. Yeah, I agree. It's because it was all made up after the fact. Yeah. Like, we knew where Obi-Wan had to start, and we knew where he had to end up, and then it was just a squiggly line in the middle, and it was just made by committee. I was getting so sick of this, like, oh, like, one episode is a whole new set piece. Every episode, we're just on a completely different planet with completely different stakes no and reason. characters. Yeah, and not just for no reason, but like... Okay, Darth Vader caught up to us. Okay, so the first thing he's going to do, since he has literally all of the resources of a galaxy-wide empire, is blockade this entire planet with so many Star Destroyers, you're not going to be able to throw a rock without hitting one. And, and right. somehow you escape every time? It's like it's like the it was like a fourth fifth wall break, you know. It just because the producers are like, well, it's a new episode, we need a new set, so let's let them get away. How did they get away? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, details. Super easy, barely an inconvenience. Uh, there was a great okay, okay. There was one scene where Darth Vader, yeah, Darth Vader walks into a hangar, and the shuttle that you presume that they're all on is taking off, and he force grabs it out of the sky slams yeah, yeah. it back uh, into the ground and starts ripping giant chunks out of it with the force. Yeah. And then the Okay, and, so that's a magic system problem. It, well, no, I'm okay with that. But then but <laughs> but the shuttle behind it that actually had everybody on it, that one takes off and like, gets ah, that free. was a decoy, boom, and they fly and like, off and he what doesn't catch yeah, that one? Darth, you're standing right there. I just saw you pull the other one out of the sky. You don't have another hand free? Like what's going on? <laughs> yeah, but but that's a that's breaking the second rule. Like, they showed us the limitations of the magic system and then didn't follow it. Yeah. <sighs> I I, okay. I will say I was very so, trepidatious. I, I'm going to talk a lot about Darth Vader because that was that was the coolest. Because for, for all of Star Wars history, we have this character that we all fear and, and like, like, oh, this yes. is the pinnacle of the bad guy. The ultimate baddie. But they never really get – he never gets to show himself off in, like, a high action kind of way. And we know he's kind of limited in his mobility because of all this artificialness that's about him. And so what? we only get like real brief snippets of him being like this undescribable force of evil. Yes, yes, it's it's the it's the hallway scene from the end of um, Rogue One. Yeah, that was it. Was just took your breath away with how how 
much of an unstoppable force he yes. was. Yes, and uh, for me in this series, there is a fight that he has with one of his underlings, and she's got she's dual wielding red lightsabers, and she comes at him with everything she's got, and he doesn't even draw his lightsaber. He's just <laughs> he just like puts his palm up and is force stopping every swing that she throws at him, and like she just can't get any traction. Yeah. Okay. And and those moments are brilliant. Uh, that character was called Reva Savander. Uh, she was played by Moses Ingram. I wasn't impressed with that character or that thing. I want to read you something I read from an interview of one of the writers or producers. Okay. Um, it said, Long discussions were held before it was decided to include Darth Vader in the series. Okay. And this decision was not made lightly. The original scripts featured different villains, including Darth Maul, but ultimately, they decided not to use him as they felt it would be a little bit much to have both Maul and Vader. <laughs> what, the guy that was chopped in half what would have had to have been yeah. 30 or 40 years before the epi- the, the events of this episode? <sighs> okay, so, we, so you have what used to be a movie and then became a TV series... And you had what you knew, your main character, Obi-Wan, you knew he was supposed to be at the end, beginning and you knew he was supposed to be at the end. And then they threw in this other storyline of this girl that turned out to be one of the younglings who saw her friends slaughtered <sighs> during Order 66 in the temple. There was a lot of hinting to that in the first couple of episodes. And because they pace it so they don't all come out at once, you got really got to wonder about it. They were calling each other cryptic names like brother number five and sister number two or whatever. Yeah, I- I knew it as soon as we saw that. Like, I knew, like, oh, this is one of the younglings. But I still, I she explained it in words on screen to me, the viewer. And I still don't understand. You saw yeah, why, this why? guy kill every one of your friends. You saw yeah, and, Anakin Skywalker kill everybody. You know that Darth Vader is that guy. Why are you yeah, helping why, him? Why did you decide, oh, I got to be, I must need to be on his side? It doesn't make no sense. sense. I don't know. I don't know how that cleared the, the you know, their original <laughs> storyboarding. Oh, and then she was going to kill Luke. and like, oh, I couldn't do it. Obi-Wan should have cut her in half right then. It's like, oh, thanks for not doing it. Wapow! Never have to worry about you again. So we have three episodes of Obi-Wan kind of being the reluctant, I don't want to go do this. we got some respectable kid acting from kids playing Luke and Leia. Um, and then we got three episodes of, like you said, just changing sets for no reason and, and kind of continued conflicts between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan. All of that aside, while all of this was happening, I was really enjoying the meta stuff that was happening outside. There was these reunions of Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen and James Earl Jones and Mark Hamill. And just, it, it was beautiful. I was enjoying the tweets, the videos, the the Facebook posts, all of that stuff that was happening. It really just scratched an itch for me. There, it, I, I don't... Mandalorian didn't do that. This did. This was like... This was the original cast. It was bring, you know, or some of the you know core canon cast. So here, I I hate Hayden Christensen. Uh, not him, not him <laughs> as a person, but him, the character he played as Anakin Skywalker. Uh, that's George Lucas's writing. The, yeah, that's problem, the, the prequels yes. destroyed the character of Anakin Skywalker for me. Like again, the Clone uh, Wars cartoons are a much better version. The Clone Wars cartoons, and this is this I'm bringing this up for a specific reason. There is an episode where they show a flashback of Obi Wan and Anakin having like a sparring contest with lightsabers, right? And in that, that is the Anakin Skywalker that I wanted in the in the prequel movies. It's the Anakin Skywalker that was in these Clone War cartoons. It was a very capable person that knew he was very capable, that got the job done, and was ultimately his downfall was not like the love of Padme. It was his frustration with the bureaucracy. It is, I can see what needs to be done. I can do it. Why are you stopping me? 
I find that compelling, and I enjoy the um, prequels a little bit more because of that. Like we had this, we had this republic that was supposed to represent the will of the people and was ultimately kind of powerless. The only enforcement arm they had wasn't an army; it was just this special forces group that wasn't big enough to actually take any objectives. So you had this senate that was arguing endlessly. He knew he had power, and he wanted to do something with it. Yes, that. But the, for if we're talking about the motivation. For turning somebody to the dark side, that is a much more compelling argument than this. Than his wife was than the worst love story of all time. (laughs) But this is oh, uh, you're so right. It's painful to even think. It's a reason it's become such the awful memes. Right, but then but then we get this flashback fight in the Obi Wan series where Obi Wan and Anakin are sparring, and you can see that that scene. You can see the building frustration in Hayden Christensen's like Darth Vader character with just the like I can do this. Why are you slowing me down? And yep, and Obi Wan being like, nope, you're not ready. You're you're showed that you're not ready. Yes. You're never going to be like ready. You're too aggressive. Calm down. Think more. Act less. And like that's just not who he was. Now those scenes, the the sort, the lightsaber battle between Darth Vader and Obi Wan, the lightsaber battle between between them younger, flashback wise, those are great. The the acting of Ewan McGregor of showing this character arc of this transforming from you know this Jedi at the peak of the Republic to this 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 um, hermit of an old man living in the desert was so well acted. And so it was the highlight, I think of that. The first few episodes, he, he really sold that. He just felt beaten. Like he had come from like, you're the pinnacle of this civilization to hiding in a cave in the desert. And like he, you could tell he felt that to his core. Like he was barely keeping himself together. It was hard to get on that stupid camel and go cut those fish all day, every day. (laughs) Yeah. So this series was rated 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's, that's I think generous. probably on the back of the acting performance. Yeah. That was by that was by the critics okay. who were okay. looking at, you know, the performances by James Earl Jones and Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christians, these really top shelf actors doing some of their best work. Uh the fan ratings of this series, Obi-Wan Kenobi, was 66%. That's a 17 point discrepancy. Ooh. Why do you think that is? I can tell you you know. Well, and it's like I brought this up at the beginning. I feel like the the character development, what we were supposed to care about was the, the was Obi-Wan's journey with reconciling his actions that that he felt responsible partially for the fall of the Republic because he didn't see this in his Padawan, because he didn't see this in his best friend and because he didn't take stronger action. And so he had this crippling responsibility and this doubt and this just self-loathing almost. And to see him like get pulled out of that and slowly recover and get back to a, a shadow of what he was before was cathartic in a way. Uh, but that is he, contrasted with this hodgepodge vignette, one planet, then the next, then the next, that like I, I can't even tell what's going on this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you have what was going to be a movie and you turn it into a TV series and you're in a hurry because you need something to put out in 2022 to keep people subscribing to Disney Plus. That's that's what that's the reason for this, you know, pitch meeting series, why it's so funny, because as much as it's satire, it's also a bit true. If this entire storyline had taken place on like one planet, like if Obi-Wan went to the first planet that uh, Leia had been taken to on that city planet and the entire rest of the movie took place there just moving around from place to place, it would have, one, made a, a lot more sense. 
but it would have been better suited for a movie because a movie's only going to be 90 to 120 minutes long. This was what right. six, seven episodes that that were all an yeah. hour long. Like you can't stay on one set piece for seven hours. Yeah. Well, you know, some of my favorite movies from the prequels are lines and, and the character of Obi Wan is played by Ewan McGregor. So I really enjoyed this for those reasons. He's just a good actor and really understands that character. Did you laugh out loud when he? I forget when he did it, but at one point he actually did his his classic line where he's just that chipper. Hello, Hello there. there. Yes. Like, I <laughs> yes. laughed out loud. Totally. We, it was great. <laughs> okay. Do you feel like there was anything different about the magic system of Obi-Wan? Hmm. Like, this was much more about the Force. It, it, well, uh, he was rusty. He'd kind of lost his edge. Well, and that's because the Force is so tied to your personal emotional state. And, like, he felt like he was worthless. And so that manifested through his ineptitude. So ultimately, we knew about the Force, and they were kind of counting on that. And he had to get back in touch with it so that he wouldn't just get overrun by Anakin, who's like at the peak of his powers. Yes, I, I, I think they did fine with that. Like, I, I think that it facilitated the storytelling and that we could tell when Obi was getting his groove back, one. And then two, we didn't manifest any Force powers that we weren't expecting or that miraculously solved a problem out of nowhere Deus Ex style like the the new series of movies had did. Uh, it was on the border. There was that scene where they were having that lightsaber battle out in the field and they started throwing rocks at each other. And Obi-Wan had that moment where he'd gotten down, you know, knocked down and it looked like Darth had defeated him. And then Obi-Wan had a flashback and then stood up and was rejuvenated and started throwing stuff. And it was like nothing that's ever happened in any lightsaber battle in the entire universe. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, we've seen... Darth Vader throws stuff at people that he's fighting in a lightsaber fight before. He did that to Mark Hamill in Empire Strikes Back. He ripped some stuff off the wall and threw right. it at him. So it's an extrapolation that he's a little bit younger in this movie. So maybe he's got a little more machismo. And there were a bunch of rocks handy. I mean, why, why, why not? Okay. So I did something that I feel will kind of wrap all this up. And we're going to have to do our religion as a meme uh, talk Next yeah, time. I threw up my fingers because I thought of one more thing. So we keep talking about Boba Fett and Mandalorian as a Western. This felt a lot more like a samurai movie. And I'm thinking mm. specifically of the scene where Darth Vader's climbing out of his shuttle and we have this wide shot of the two of them, lightsabers out, one on either side, one in like this open desert and the one like in this like rock forest. And okay. he slowly turns his it. back on his opponent and walks into the forest expecting the guy to follow him to fight to the death. That felt nice. very samurai. Okay, so what I want to do uh, for these three films is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay. Since we're talking about them as westerns and samurai movies, classic title of a western and western sheriff kind of thing, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So to me, the good is spending more time in the Star Wars universe, which oh, I love. I just want to take the whole Star Wars universe and wrap it around me like a warm, fuzzy blanket. Like, it's just so great. Yeah. Uh, more time and new and interesting characters like you said the ones that just really like i have spoken you know character played by nick nolte or this is the way or you know just yes 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 all right if you listen every every listener that is hearing my voice that aspires to be some kind of creative storytelling person we don't care about the stakes of the plot line we care about the people in those situations focus on characters first you can have – this is why Obi-Wan has that weird discrepancy because the characters are phenomenal, but the storytelling is wishy-washy. But we still liked it. Like the characters are what we care about. Yep. Yep. 
And and for me, maybe not. I I, I can't speak for you, but for me, also the beloved actors. I mean, to, while they're still around, having James Earl Jones voicing Darth Vader just brought chills down my spine all over again. You know, you McGregor was just chewing it up and doing awesome. Seeing Hayden Christian again was great. Mark Hamill, Jimmy Smiths, even Jimmy Smiths from the prequels as <laughs> as um uh the prince the king from Alderaan. Uh, I'm trying to think of his name, Bail Organa. Yeah. Uh, or even Owen Lars, the actor that played him, you know, coming back, he did a great job. Uh, Ian McDermott as the Emperor, and and even L- Liam Neeson as um, Qui Gon Jinn, probably my favorite uh, Jedi of Got, all time. Oh, like, well, I mean, obviously you haven't spent enough time with Mace Windu, but yeah, seeing <laughs> Liam Neeson there at the end, it's like it's about time. It's like, have you been this whole time? Yeah, but you weren't ready to see me. Oh, so, thanks, Qui Gon. One last lesson. So seeing Obi Wan and Darth Vader lightsaber fighting or Anakin back in the prequels it almost made me a bit nostalgic for the prequels like I might go back and watch him again give him another Ugh, chance I mean like can we just and, watch certain scenes and like forget about everything else that happens and I think Obi-Wan had some John Williams scoring and it really just tugs at your heart and your and you know just your inner child when you hear that that's all my the good you got any good to add it was absolutely the characters like number one all time always going to be the characters the second is I love that we have vehicles to explore the fringes of the Star Wars universe. Like so many more people now know about like Mandalorian culture and just like how rich and deep and like there is so much there. Now look around the Star Wars universe. How many more untapped like wells of awesome storytelling exist out there? And now we have a vehicle for those. We don't have to have a blockbuster movie. We can just have a series where one episode we talk about these krill farmers on this swamp planet that are being attacked by an old AT-AT. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like an old western. Yes, exactly. So just just having the ability to, to get more Star Wars, not just the Star Wars that we know and love, but like more of it. Huh. All right, time for the bad. So th- this... Th- they're spending too much time smack in the middle of a really well-known bit of lore. Yeah. You're just right in the middle of the Star Wars timeline. Like, Obi-Wan was really hobbled by it. You know exactly where he was when this started. You know exactly where he's going to be when it ends up. And it's like starting to watch The Sixth Sense, but they tell you in the first minute that the guy's dead, and you don't get to watch it Dude, one time. spoilers. God. Yeah. Well, you, you talked. You introduced this idea in the last episode of the M Night Factor. I'm going to say that some of these, where you're exploring a well-known universe with known characters, where you know where they end up and you know where they start, and it's just going to be a little bit of a squiggly line in the middle. The, the M Night Factor is like zero. Like you can't spoil it. You know what's going to happen. It's not like yeah, it, it, they can't go and chop Obi Wan's leg off in a lightsaber fight with Darth Vader. Like that just right. cannot happen. So, yeah, that part, this, for Obi-Wan specifically, that was a huge problem. Uh, now, on the same, at the same time, I feel like for The Mandalorian, that could have been a strength. Because we knew kind of what was going on in the big universe. So we knew that, like, the Empire was gone but not gone. And so we were informed about what was going on in, like, the large-scale sense. So they didn't have to spend time filling in those blanks for us. We could just focus on the story. Yeah. Also... Retcon galore, like just all over the place, going back and kind of fixing things to what they want them to be instead of what they were. Like if you're going to do this and you're going to start out in the middle of the timeline, just accept it and try to find a way to tell an interesting story with the limitations you have instead of changing it. Like in the prequels when when, um, all of a sudden R2-D2 could fly. Like (laughs) stop it. You you just broke every scene that R2-D2 has ever been in. 
um, yeah, Leia, Leia was a problem for me in all of these because I'm like, okay, why is that? Just because like, she's been exposed to a lot here. Like, look around, like she's learning a ton about like the old Republic, the empire, the fall of it, like how things went down. Some of the key players, she spent like a week with Obi-Wan basically holding her hand. And like, yeah, that informs the fact that she knew who Obi-Wan was. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only That informs that. But at the same time, it feels like she would have called him way earlier than this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't even... That's the problem. Wait a minute. You start off this story telling it in the middle, and then you say you're going to go back and tell the beginning of it, but it's still just a story. You can't imagine enough to fill in all the details. I'm imagining Leia being inducted into the rebellion for the first time. And like, oh, you know what? Who would be great to recruit for this whole movement here? Like, that would be the first word out of her mouth is like, you need to go find Obi-Wan. He's on Tatooine. I've got a communicator that I'll call him direct. Ugh. (sighs) Well, I did enjoy them picking a 10-year-old actress who did a a cute wonderful little job and giving making her be plucky and useful and interesting and kind of show the development of <laughs> what her life might have been like that would lead her to be the character we saw at the beginning of a new hope i also very much enjoy that leia's force sensitivity power is knowing your deepest insecurity at a glance <laughs> like that's official canon now she can meet you for five seconds and if she's mad enough at you she's gonna go stone-faced and then tell you your deepest darkest secret to your face all right well also in my the bad uh there was a few not so great actors here and there i don't need to name them i've said a few and the the rules of magic people follow them like yeah you can err on the side of that which is awesome but you shouldn't every time it, it just makes it so that nobody knows what's going on and there are no stakes. The first couple episodes of Obi-Wan, we had this Grand Inquisitor guy that was shutting down our our youngling grown-up now. And eventually she, what, cut him in half or killed him because she didn't want to yeah. take the glory. But then he, what, comes back in the last episode as, I don't as know. a gotcha. I don't know. So, wait a minute, you've just been hanging out in the fringes, giving me enough rope to hang myself. For what reason? I, I, I tried to kill you with a lightsaber. I feel like that's enough of a transgression to throw me in jail. Yeah, so that leads to my the ugly. So we've done the good and the bad. The ugly to me is like, does no one die in the Star Wars universe? Like, no one. Anakin, Darth Maul, the Emperor, Boba Fett, Fennec Shand, the Grand Inquisitor. It's it's ridiculous. Like, what? how can there be any stakes if getting cut in half and thrown down a bottomless pit isn't enough to end your existence? I, I will say, I'm a little shaky on the timeline of Boba Fett. Like, he fell into the Sarlacc pit wearing his armor, and the Sarlacc had him in the pit long enough to, what, get all of the armor off of him and then vomit it up so somebody else could steal it. But he was still alive, being digested, and then somehow clawed his way out after that? Like, I'm really... How did the Sarlacc's guts take his armor off? I'm I'm... I'm misty on the details here. Wow, your brain really goes to a different place than mine on that. I don't try to fill all those details in with the biology of some non-existent creature. I'm just like, whatever, they they hand-waved on that one. <laughs> well, this is like, Star Wars loves their bottomless pits, but it's it's lore that if you're a Jedi, if you're a trained Jedi, falling from any height is irrelevant. You're going to land on your feet and be fine like a cat. So I, they get a little bit like, okay, that's fine. Um, there are some other times... Uh, and uh, Darth Vader lighting a giant fire and then force pulling Obi-Wan into it as a uh, recompense for leaving yeah, by the lava. Yeah. Uh, this, it, it was supposed to be poetic justice. But then Ewan McGregor walked away with no burns, no injuries. Yeah. 
and somehow like okay he was 10 feet from darth vader and completely helpless and somehow escaped the planet like i get that obi-wan or that darth vader was like oh this this wasn't my teacher this is this pathetic thing but i i still don't think he would let him get away you can do that right one of my favorite Marvel movies, um, Captain America, Winter Soldier, does this exact same thing, thing where um, Steve Rogers has a confrontation with Bucky before he knows that he's Bucky, and they're together in close quarters, and they fight, and they're and they're not they're coming to a stalemate, and then they get separated, and they can't. It, it ends the chase. It happens three times in that okay. movie. It's the same kind of thing. You know, you need to build up the tension, but you can't resolve it right now, so you have to separate them. And if you can come up with a plausible plot device to do that, great. Yeah, but in this case, we're like, so two super soldiers being separated by government level agencies, they can sell that. That makes sense. People on the scale of Obi Wan and Darth Vader, like, we saw Darth Vader in the next episode rip a starship out of the sky with his bare hand. But somehow, yeah, and he's like ten feet away, and, and he gets somehow away. somebody dragged it. him yeah. away. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All right. Well, I have one last thought, and I, I apologize for not knowing the context of this, but you may have seen there were some tweets or some interviews or something where Taika Waititi, who just um, directed Thor: Love and Thunder, uh, who he, I think has potentially been courted for directing a future Star Wars property of some part of some flavor basically went out and very publicly criticized a lot of what they're doing in Star Wars right now. And basically what he's saying is like, we got to get out of the Skywalker storylines. Like Star Wars is an interesting place, but we, but it's so suffocating to be in the middle of this zero factor M night Shyamalan. Yes. There's so much emotional baggage. If you're tied down to any of these characters, that, that's what right. happened to these the new movies. Like we talked about, the Force Awakening had so, it was so good because they didn't try to tie themselves down to the old storyline, and then they got a new director and they went right back to the old stuff, and then we got s- stuck with all these stupid potholes and retcons. I agree with that. I think Taika Waititi hit the nail on the head. Like I, I said this earlier in the podcast, like Star Wars is huge. There are untapped wells of awesome storytelling out there. Let's go find them. All right. Well, let's hope that they do. I guess uh, the next one will be Ahsoka. I wonder what her adventure will be. Hopefully it's not in the desert. I'm tired of tattooing. The only hope that I have for Ahsoka is that she manifests more of her adolescent attitude. Like she was a spitfire in those shows and she's been very, very calm as an adult in these. I would rather that she was kind of sassy like she was before. All right. Well, Audience, if you're a Star Wars fan, maybe you have some opinions. There's plenty of places you can come and interact with us and let us know what they are. You can go on our subreddit at reddit slash r slash bad at magic, or you can go on our Facebook page. Uh, links in the show notes, and you can weigh in on the debate. Let us know what you thought of Obi-Wan, Boba Fett, and The Mandalorian, and um, get, give your opinions about what you think the future holds. If you like what we do, share us with a friend. If you like us, maybe your friends will like us too. If you really want to show us some love, consider taking your phone out of your pocket right now and giving us a good review on the podcast player of your choice. Unbelievable the visibility we get on that. If you want Ben and I to talk about Star Wars from now until the end of time, well, really, you probably don't have to do anything because we're going to do that anyway. (laughs) But consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. And until next time, try to be a little less bad at magic.